Welcome, everyone, to episode four of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and with me today is my co-host, Scott Harvey. Though the Oscars are still to come tomorrow night, for the first two parts of the podcast today, we're leaving Oscar season behind and talking about two recent releases, first in the MCU's critical and box office sensation, Black Panther, and then Alex Garland's second directorial outing with Annihilation. Before we get to those movies and other topics, however, Scott, it's been a minute since we last got together to do this podcast, since we did record the last episode a week early. How have you been doing these last few weeks? I've been doing good. I am, uh, I'm hitting spring break now at school, so I'm excited about that. And I'm also I'm high-key obsessing right now over this. Um, have you heard this new um, Weird Al Hamilton polka that he's put out? No, I, I haven't heard or, or listened to this. Yes, it's well. So you know, he's he's famous for doing his polka songs on every album, Weird Al, where he like mashes all of the year's hits together into a polka song. Well, now he's put out a version that is all these songs from Hamilton mashed up with in, with polka music, and it's pretty incredible. He and Lin Manuel Miranda lip synced to it last night on Jimmy Fallon, and so oh, I awesome. highly recommend it. He's he's a genius. That's crazy. That sounds so cool. I'm gonna <laughs> check that out after this. Yeah. Awesome. Well. I know, I've been looking forward to, to getting back together and, and talking about some movies, so why don't we just uh, go ahead and jump right in? Let's do it. All right, so Black Panther. Released two weeks ago, now on February 16th, Black Panther has already amassed over $770 million in its first two and a half weeks worldwide. That doesn't include this weekend, and I'm sure that it's going to have another very strong weekend this weekend, so we'll see if it breaks a billion this weekend. Not only has the film been a box office success, though, it's been a critical one, boasting the highest Rotten Tomatoes score of any live-action superhero film, with 97%, with The Dark Knight and Iron Man coming in and tied for second with 94% each, as well as an 88 on Metacritic, indicating universal acclaim. I was shocked when I saw these scores come out, which made me even more excited for the movie. And it, I, for me, it definitely, it definitely... I don't know if it meets the hype, but it certainly is an incredible superhero film. It's Ryan Coogler's third directorial outing. In each case, he's collaborated with Michael B. Jordan, who plays Killmonger in this film. And beside, alongside Michael B. Jordan, Black Panther also stars Chadwick Bosman as T'Challa in the titular Black Panther role, Lupita Nyong'o as Nakia, Denai Guerrera as Okoye, Letitia Wright as Shuri, and Angela Bassett as Ramonda, just to name a few of the outstanding members of this cast. Before we tackle the nitty-gritty, though, like always, I'd like to start with your general impressions of the film, especially as someone who isn't a religious viewer of comic book superhero movies, kind of like I am. Yeah, yeah, not at all, and that was something I was going to point out, was that I, uh, I'm i not the biggest comic book movie uh, fan. Now, I, that's not to say that I haven't seen a lot of them, but I have actually seen a lot of them, um, but I, you know, I'm not... I haven't seen many of them multiple times. I'm not a person who has to rush out and see these movies like right when they come out. Um, and you know, I'm not familiar with really the comics or anything. Um, so, and, and I, I will admit, um, in recent years, I have grown a little weary of some of the superhero movies. Um, you know, because especially the DC, you know, with the DCEU, some of those movies are just straight up not good. Um, you know, Man of Steel comes to mind. Suicide, um, no, Suicide Squad's got to come to mind first. That movie is yeah, garbage. Yeah, <laughs> Man of Steel was the one that really did it for me first. But but then, I don't know, the Marvel Universe, it, the film started to feel a little bit samey to me a little bit um, as they went on. Although, you know, there were some more, some recent ones that I enjoyed. You know, Captain America, The Winter Soldier is the one that comes to mind. Um but so yeah, I was interested to see this movie, um, not just because of all the hype surrounding it, but because it, it just, does just have such a 
different feel to it, even from the trailers. Um, I could tell that this was not going to be your ordinary superhero movie, and it certainly isn't. And I think that one of the things um, that I like so much about it is the way that it blends um, different genres in with the traditional superhero movie. Um, I think you have a little bit of like a spy, almost James Bondish, James Bondish thriller going on at some points, um, and also you have a big like war epic on le- on the levels of something like Braveheart or Ben-Hur, especially in like the final scenes of this movie. Um, so I really um, admired the way that uh, Ryan Coogler was able to uh, fuse these genres together um, in, in a way that didn't make the movie feel disjointed and still was faithful to the, the story's origin as a comic book superhero movie. Um, and, yeah, it just has a very different feel to it overall. Um, there's some political statements which are certainly being made. There's a lot to say about race in this movie, um, a lot to say about gender. Um, so it, it, I understand why people are responding so positively to it. And maybe um, I'm not as overwhelmingly positive um, as a lot of people are on this movie. I think you kind of maybe feel the same way. Um, I, I, ha- I do have like a couple of minor issues with it. Um, but overall, it is a very, very solid um, entry in the MCU uh, um, franchise, and d- definitely one of the one of the best entries in the MCU franchise, certainly at, in the last several years, to be sure. Yeah, for for me, this movie ranks up there with Spider-Man: Homecoming from last year. Uh, in, if we're putting it in the context of the MCU, the yeah. Winter Soldier. I'm glad you brought that one up because that's, I mean, that's one of the highlights of the MCU overall. Yeah, I should say I did love Spider-Man: Homecoming as well. I thought it was great. Right, right. And I want to I want to talk a little bit more just from my perspective on this movie about what you're saying about a lot of the Marvel movies feeling similar and kind of for the lack of a better phrase blurring together. And and this one is so different in in lots of ways. You mentioned the the blending of genres that made this di- film feel different for you. And another thing that is different for me is kind of within the superhero genre too. So what you see is very different sorts of combat, right? So, like, the combat style is unrecognizable from a lot of the other yes. Marvel movies. You know, a lot of the just character interactions in a, like, in the, through the lens of a superhero film are very different, and I think a lot of that comes from the the blending of, like, a political genre with, yeah. with, the, with the film, and that's something that really struck me, and, I mean, obviously, the, the, the characters on the screen are very different than ones we've seen, if you caveat that, like, T'Challa was in Civil War. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, these characters are, are different. They're, you know, the only white characters in the film are my, uh, Martin Freeman, who is an outsider, and, you know... Andy Serkis. And Andy Serkis, who, who uh, a spoiler alert, does does die, like, halfway through the movie. Yeah. And... I, go ahead. I definitely agree with what you're saying, too, about the combat. I think that was one thing that stuck out to me um, as being different, because even some of the best superhero movies, to me, um, can, <laughs> can tend to lose their way in the third act... Because the bat, like the you know the big final battle, always ends up being these two supernatural you know beings just punching each other and doing all of this. It, it, it basically it's all this sort of uh, stuff that is it's very hard to connect with and it's very hard to uh, be invested in what is going on when it's all of this sort of uh, you know broad super supernatural lasers and all that all this kind of stuff going on and i know i probably sound like an old person right now as i'm describing (laughs) that but um but but even like wonder woman for example which is a movie that i really enjoyed last year um i thought that the final battle scene was kind of a letdown it was just basically two 
yeah. you know, big superhuman creatures uh, punching each other to death. Yeah. Um, yep. So, but that was one thing that I really enjoyed is that you know the battles were were so real in this movie, especially at the end. Um, and 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 you know the one on one fights that T'Challa has in a couple of moments with Killmonger and with uh, Mbaku. Um, yep. I, yeah, it, it, they felt so real, and like I said, they felt like a war epic. So it was so much easier to get invested. I feel like in those battles because you could see the characters, you knew what was going on. Um, so yeah, that was one thing which really. Uh, distinguished it from other superhero movies for me as well yeah and and going beyond that and adding to that because i totally agree i think that another big point is i'm thinking of particular uh, okoye and her tribes fighting style and we can talk about other tribes too maybe but maybe too deep of a cut but the just their the combat that they pursued like they're using staffs it's not something that you've seen in the mcu even with hand-to-hand like even if even if you take into account like okay black panther is still using hand-to-hand combat right like you get this. You get these other kinds of combat. So there, there is like Wakabi's tribe, who's like very defense oriented, using shields. There's a Koye's tribe who uses these staffs, and it's very acrobatic combat styles. It, it was a pleasure and a joy to watch on screen these different styles, and it's something I really appreciated. Along with exactly what you're saying, that being able to get more invested in some of these more traditional superhero scenes, because for uh, you know for whatever reason, it, it's not like a it's not a you know beat 'em up kind of yeah smackdown in in a way. So that's kind of our general impressions on the film, and I'm sure we'll continue to add in more impressions that we had as we go on. But I'd love to just talk a little bit more about some of the some of the key players in this film, and we might as well start with with Black Panther, with T'Challa, with Chadwick Bosman. What did you know? I you know my personal take is that he he's kind of overshadowed by everyone else in this film, and in that's not to say he doesn't do a good job. I, I think he, his portrayal of T'Challa, Chadwick Bosman, that is, you know, his portrayal of T'Challa is one that is, 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 is it, it has subtlety, which I appreciated. It's, it's understated in the moments where it needs to be understated and assertive in the moments that it needed to be assertive. And I, and I appreciated that if it was not outstanding, if that makes sense. I don't know if that resonates with you. Well, I, I have to say that I completely agree. Um, I think that, his performance was one of the main issues which I had with this movie. Um, and I think it, exactly what you said, you, you nailed it by saying that I think he gets overshadowed basically in almost every scene. Um, the one exception, uh, which I will say is, uh, so since we, we, we've already spoiled, so there's, uh, um, when he's, when he's dead, um, and he's, um, like in the, in this sort of underworld and he sees his father, um, the ancestral realm. Yeah, the ancestral realm yeah, is what it's called. Yep. Yeah, uh, and he sees his father, and he has this, you know, sort of rant monologue about how, basically, how he's starting to understand Michael B. Jordan's goal, like Killmonger's goal of, you know, that really the Wakanda, the Wakandans probably should have been helping out all of these other poor African nations um, all along, and you know, he, you can really see in that scene he. That was sort of the change of heart that he's um, he's undergone, and like the pain that he feels at not having done more in the past. Um, so I thought that that was a strong scene for Chadwick Boseman. But I agree, um, considering he is the main character of this movie, considering this movie is called Black Panther, um, he, his performance definitely did not resonate with me, um, like really many other um, 
actors, lead performers in superhero movies have in the past, even ones I didn't like. Um, I feel like usually they, the, the hero is, is generally well cast. And, you know, you know, maybe some of it is by design with T'Challa. Um, but I feel like uh, really this movie is stolen by a lot of the supporting characters. Um, so I feel like Chadwick Boseman definitely could have done more in that regard. Um, and, you know, maybe this, again, maybe this is with sort of his history as a, as a performer, because up until now he is... Uh, been known sort of for doing biopics um, like he was in Marshall, he was in Get On Up, the James Brown movie, he was in 42, Jackie Robinson um, so these are more sort of understated films I guess I would say um, so maybe uh, you know, he, he wasn't quite the right person to choose for this big budget superhero action movie um, at least at this stage of his career um, but you know, I, I don't think that um, he his performance takes anything away from the movie. And like I said, I do think there are strong moments to it. Yeah. I don't know if I totally agree that like this, he was like the wrong person for this role. Yeah. I think that, I think the reality is that Ryan Coogler, I actually don't know who the writer is for this film, but Ryan Coogler, I'm assuming obviously played a, a key part in, in developing the script and these characters on screen. And I think that the reality is, is that the characters around T'Challa and I think this is less to do with Chadwick Bosman and more to do with just the, the character arcs, right? That the characters around T'Challa are are much more compelling characters than T'Challa is himself. And yeah, that's fair enough, yeah. And I mean, it's totally fine if you if you think that Chadwick Bosman didn't do a good job. I, I think that he he didn't have the most to do of the cast and in that sense and, and maybe some ways was even limited, right? Like he he's supposed to portray this arc of realization that the father that he thought he had if you go back for the if, even if you just think of this in terms of the the times he visits the ancestral realm right so like the you know the first time he's asking his father how to be a good king in the full belief that his father was this ideal king of wakanda and you know he like these things happen in the movie where he starts to question whether and understand better what his father represented as king and that second time he visits the ancestral realm, which you talked about when he has this rant where he has this his big moment, if you will, on the screen, which I totally agree was a great scene, and you can see the pain. He realizes that you know his perceptions of his father of Wakanda before now weren't entirely accurate or weren't weren't entirely filled out in some ways. And this arc of questioning his his own father, his own bloodlines, you know, integrity in terms of killing his his father killing his own brother and leaving his uh, his nephew or and T'Challa's cousin in the in in Oakland questioning that and realizing that his father was not the person he thought he was and i think that that, that subplot line is where you is where T'Challa Chadwick Bosman has the most to do in terms of acting and in that subline he does it well just the problem is in the other scenes the characters are more filled out, and the acting is at least as good, and in my opinion, better than Chadwick Bosman's. Uh, not not to say anything necessarily negative about Chadwick Bosman's performance. Yeah, I definitely think I, I agree. There's there's a, a balance. I think you, some of it you have to uh, maybe count to the acting, um, but some of it you you probably have to point to the character as well as not being the focal point not being the showpiece in a lot of these scenes and for we'll sure talk about some more of the supporting characters as well absolutely yeah and i did just check ryan coogler was one of the screenwriters for this so it is so it's definitely right. a lot of ryan coogler's doing he was partnered with joe robert cole for the screenwriting of this film 
All right, so we've, that that's kind of Black Panther, T'Challa in our mind, and and like you said, where he's going to keep coming up because he is the central figure in the movie. But let's go ahead and talk about Michael B. Jordan's character, Killmonger. He, um, I, I think that anyone who's listened to this show from the beginning will remember that I said Michael B. Jordan is my most underrated actor in Hollywood, and I don't think he disappoints in this movie. I think he's absolutely fantastic, even if his character isn't the best, which is something we can talk about. Yeah, I think he, I think he really is the scene stealer in this movie. And, I, you know, just from t- speaking to other people, just friends who have seen this movie, they too are, are were really taken with this um, performance in particular. And I think it's just because he's so different from all of the other characters in this movie. Um, and, you know, a lot of that is because his character was raised in Oakland, um, as opposed to in Wakanda. So when he, you know, when he shows up in Wakanda, he, he, everything about him is different. He dresses different. He speaks different. Um, he just has a, a different outlook on the world altogether. And I think that's one of the things that makes this character so interesting. You know, we're talking about how T'Challa kind of undergoes this inner conflict about, you know, should, should Wakanda have been doing more? Was his father really a great king or whatever? And so I think while, Michael B. Jordan, while Killmonger's character is obviously the villain of this piece and obviously does his fair share of evil deeds, um, it's it's interesting because his his end goal is arguably a very noble one um, and is one which T'Challa and the rest of Wakanda sort of adopt at the end of this movie after even after Killmonger is out of the picture. Um, so it's, it's well, very to a, interesting to a lesser extent. They, they did not adopt the policy yes. that, yeah, not, not, not to, to the extent that he was, uh, not to the militaristic extent, yeah. which he was, um, advocating for, but in the, in the essence that, um, you know, we're going to pay more attention to these, uh, smaller, poorer African nations as, you know, since Wakanda is, you know, well off as, as a result of its vibranium supply, um, you know, sort of a very a very bilateral approach to fo- sort of foreign policy as a whole. Um, you know, I think it's 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 like I said, arguably a noble goal. Um, so it's it's very interesting to see a um, a villain who um, you know his goal isn't world domination, world destruction. It's arguably the opposite of that, um, and. I think that uh, even though his character, you know, like I said, does his fair share of evil deeds, um, I was, you know, because of Michael B. Jordan's performance, I was loving every moment with this character on screen and really wanting him to be in even more scenes yeah. uh, because of the strength of the performance. I couldn't agree more. Michael B. Jordan is is magnetic on the screen. I've described several, char- I think, several characters in other films like that in the past, and I think he fits that word just as well as any other. Like, even from the very first scene he's in, so the, in the art gallery, when he ste- when they steal the vibranium weapon from Wakanda right. that was there, he you instantly get this image of someone who is just so comfortable in that role. And then as you go on, you realize he's comfortable in, in taking that role to lots of different places, right? So you get this this first scene, he's, a, he's this intellectual, or at least he comes off as this very intellectually driven person who very much understands his history. He's very knowledgeable, very very smart and also very savvy right so he can navigate his way around conversations with people very well and is very assert- assertive in in the fact that you know he obviously ends up stealing this vibranium weapon along with claw 
and then over the course of the film, his character changes quite a bit, and, and that's not necessarily something that I totally like in terms of how it develops always. I, I think that the character impression that we get in the first scene doesn't carry through the film well enough. Like, those first impressions are kind of dropped there, and, and you don't necessarily get much of the sense that, that Killmonger, played by Michael B. Jordan, is, is this... You don't remember that he went to MIT, and and really all you remember is the fact that he was... Uh, was he Black Ops, I think is what it was? Maybe? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you get the, you get the more militaristic side, as, you, as the, to use the word you used, it, for Killmonger, as opposed to his you know, intellectual MIT back, background for the film. And I wish that had carried through more. I also think that his, to your point and fleshing that out a bit more about, I wish he was in more scenes. I think that he's largely absent for the first like 45 minutes of the film. You get a couple scenes with him, but it's largely focusing on T'Challa in Wakanda. And I think as a result of that, a lot of work has to be done really quickly in the like act two of the movie, if you will. And his character rapidly develops. Not that you can't understand everything that's happening, just that for me, there isn't enough development there to to really justify what's happening on screen, even though I understand what's going on. I don't know. that Maybe that's a little bit confusing, but that's the best way I can describe it. No, I mean, I agree, because I was like, you know, I was going along with this character for a lot in the movie. You know, you talked about that first scene in the museum where he steals the weapon, you know, and he has this... This great, these great um, moments where he's, you know, calling out the curator and saying, well, "Yeah, but where did all these things come from? No, your people took them from the from you know the native Africans." And uh, you know, just just sort of, uh, it, it was a very relevant scene, I thought, because you know, we have all these museums, and you you, you sometimes wonder, you know, do where how how exactly did people come to obtain these artifacts? And I'm sure that a lot of the things. Uh, which are in, for example, the British Museum, which I think the museum in the movie is supposed to be modeled after. Um, you know, w- were they the re- the result of some very um, nefarious conduct um, on the part of European settlers? Um, so I thought that that was a, a great scene, a very politically um, on point scene. Um, but then, you know, as the movie goes on, um, I think he. he I agree with what you said. He, he sort of um, adopt, abandons his intellectual approach. Um, and I think a lot of that is out of necessity for the storytelling because they have to turn him into a you know tr- more traditional villain, I guess, um, and, and give him sort of this uh, militaristic, this, this violent attitude um, in order to justify why exactly the Wakandans are fighting back against him. Um, so, yeah, I agree that there is definitely a, a character a rapid character development there. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Like, again, I understand why for the sake of the movie that they had to yep. do what they did. And I think that his character, you know, even after he dies, he, you know, he has, a, he has a lasting impact and what is positive about this character lasts after he dies and clearly has an effect on T'Challa and the rest of the Wakandans. Yeah, I, I agree. And the, the ending is something I'm sure we'll, we'll get to, to talk more about because I think it's a very, it's a very strong ending for, especially for a, a villain, even if maybe I, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. We'll, we'll just put that off. I think it's a strong ending for the most part. And I think that just talking a little bit more briefly, the things that you talked about in terms of how his character develops, I think the, the, I, I will maybe be a little bit more negative and, and think that at some points his character is a bit reductionist, even if that is just for the sake of the film. 
And this is epitomized by his fight scene with T'Challa, where he does, at the end of the scene, throw T'Challa off the waterfall. Right. At the beginning of that, before the fight starts, he, you know, he takes off his shirt and is like, you know, each one of these scars, each one of these people is for, like, like someone I killed in combat, and each one of these scars was so that I could so that I could lead up to this day when I fight you and kill you. And I think that's like based on the background that we've been told about him, about how he went to MIT, how he, you know, even though he grew up in the I mean, I think it's heavily implied that he grew up in the projects in Oakland, right, experiencing racism, experiencing yeah. um, you know, horrible things that people that people shouldn't be experiencing. And he overcomes that, goes to MIT, joins the military, and then to kind of reduce everything that he's done in his life to some scars on his chest just so he can kill his cousin. It's, I mean, it just feels very reductionist to me in that moment. And that this is just one moment. And I think Michael B. And I can't understate how good Michael B. Jordan is in this film. So I'm not talking about Michael B. Jordan's acting. But I thought that was, I thought that scene, that, that scene has stuck with me as like, man, I'm not, I'm just really not, I'm not vibing with that, that moment. Yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely think that that's a good point. And, I don't know. I, th- I think it, it it was a, a bit of a stretch for him to just kill T'Challa in that scene um, because, you know, even though obviously he has a lot of problems with the Wakandans and the way that T'Challa is, is running the country, um, I think that, you know, he's still very proud of his Wakandan heritage. Um, and so for him to take the leader of the, you know, this nation and just toss him off the waterfall um i don't know it it seemed a little contrary to what we knew about the character at that point so i agree yeah fair enough and then michael b jordan i mean again just to reiterate michael b jordan's acting is is stunning in this film to me and and one of the main reasons why chadwick bosman kind of gets left aside through most of the film especially when they're sharing the screen together the other reason though that i think that that chadwick bosman's acting is, is overshadowed is because of the women in this movie the women of wakanda there's Quite a few of them, I listed some of them at the beginning. So people like Letitia Wright, like Lupita Nyong'o, Denai Guerrera, Angela Bassett. Those are the ones that are top of mind for me. And wow, their characters, their acting, all spectacular. What did, what did you think of them? Yeah, uh, this was the most surprising thing about the movie to me was what a huge role all of these female characters uh, played in this movie. And, you know, I think you have seen in the recent, more recent Marvel movies, or superhero movies in general, really, with Wonder Woman, with, you know, Black Widow becoming part of the Avengers, I think you have seen more of a, a step towards, you know, including women also in this uh, comic book movie superhero world um, in prominent roles. Uh, but, you know, I still wasn't expecting, j- just because I knew, you know, Chadwick Boseman, Michael B. Jordan, Black Panther, I wasn't expecting the female ro- characters to play such a huge role Um in this movie and that there would be like more than multiple, like several really strong female characters, as you pointed out, um, you have like, you have Shuri, for example, who is like this, I I mentioned how it's James Bond esque earlier. She's almost like the Q character in this movie because she's, you know, she's working with all of the technology and she gives T'Challa his new suit. Um, and I, I thought that her characters, but and the perform, especially in the performance by Letitia Wright, like really brought so much energy to the screen. Um, Absolutely. It, yeah, it, it was it was a fun character in the midst of a movie that is pretty self serious in a lot of moments. Um, and 
but then I also thought that the performances by Lupita Nyong'o and Denai Guerrero were really strong. Um, and sort of the, the conflict that we see at points between these two characters, I'm thinking of the one scene where, uh, you know, T'Challa has died and Killmonger has, has taken over the throne of Wakanda. And there's a great scene where they're debating, you know, what exactly, um, are we going to do? And Lupita Nyong'o says, we can't submit to him. You know, we can't, um, accept him as the ruler. He killed T'Challa and Okoye, Okoye says, but you know, we have to, like, we have to, we, no matter what, this is our, our country. And, uh, you know, he, he won the, the ritual fair and square and he killed T'Challa. So, uh, I thought that that was a, that was a great moment of conflict between these two characters and, just general conflict overall in the movie. But yeah, I thought that they were all so strong and like they all play such significant roles in the battle scenes at the end too. I mean, they're, they're right in there alongside, uh, you know, some of the, some of the male warrior characters, um, like yep. Daniel Kaluuya's character and like Mbaku played by, um, I can't remember his name right now, but, um, they, they do, they are every bit as vital and important as this movie to this movie as the male characters. Um, and, yeah, yeah, it was it was very surprising, very well done. Yeah, for me, the female characters in this movie elevate the movie from you know gr- good to great or great to awesome, however you want to describe it. Right, like they take this movie to another level for me. And you mentioned you know Letitia Wright. I won't I, I won't hold my cards close to my chest here. She's my favorite character in this film. Letitia Wright is just amazing. Like Michael B. Jordan might be my my the best acting performance for me in this film, but Shuri is the best character. And she is just wonderful. You mentioned that she's kind of like a, a Q character for T'Challa. And that's true to a point, but she's also doing a lot more than Q is. Like she's like you mentioned, she's on the battlefield in the last scene. Not something that I've ever remembered Q doing in a James Bond movie. And she's so Yeah, she's so involved. She's so committed. All of these women are committed to their country. They might have different visions of what that means to be committed to the country which you rightfully pointed out, that scene of conflict between Okoye and Akia. And I think that to focus in on that scene, not only is there a good disagreement there in terms of female empowerment, because both of these both these characters aren't saying like, oh, I, like submitting to a man is, isn't really what they're talking about. What they're talking about is like, in, in, you know, taking on their own roles. What's of, best for the country. Yeah. What's best for the country, you know, what's best for them as characters. Like they're... they're interested in their in their own self-interest and being assertive in that way and what i also appreciated about that scene is that it doesn't get into this sort of like catty you know argument between them which i feel like we've seen in other films not necessarily superhero films but like when two female roles like you know conflict with each other i often am left kind of dissatisfied with how the interaction goes just in terms of like how they're portrayed a lot of the times because men are writing these roles and ryan coogler doesn't make those mistakes and i think that these characters, like, I respect all of the female characters in this film. I think the one difference between, this is kind of switching topics really quickly here, but you mentioned Wonder Woman being another example of a, of a strong female lead. And I think that this separates from a strong female lead, separates itself from this, these other examples of Wonder Woman. You mentioned Black Widow as well, because these female characters are like stand entirely on their own, in my opinion. Yeah. And they're not sexualized in any way. Like, as... As good as Gal Gadot is, as Wonder Woman, as good as Scarlett Johansson is, as Black Widow, like these characters on screen are hypersexualized. Well, that and, was one of my problems with uh, Wonder Woman too. Is like the fact that they still felt the need to have this romance 
between her and Steve Trevor. And I was like, isn't this kind of contrary to what you're trying to do in the movie? Um, and I was definitely rooting against them to have a sort of romance. Um, so yeah, I agree that, that Wonder Woman is definitely distinct in that way and that there's still this notion of her aligning herself with a male character in, at least in the forms of this romance, but that you don't really get in this movie or in, um, with Black Widow. Yeah, and, and you know, Nakia at the end does does end up staying with T'Challa in Wakanda, right. and or at least it's heavily implied she's going to become queen. But throughout the film, it's quite it's quite contrary to that. She's resistant to this idea and wants to like keep her role as a spy, as I think they're called warlords in in the Wakandan society out out in the out in the in the larger world. I, I don't remember. I guess she was in South Korea. I'm not really sure, but I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. So all these, basically, all this is to say that all these female characters stand on their own in a way that, although there have been prior examples of strong female leads, in a new way in terms of this, you know, I am going to look after my own self-interest. I'm going to make decisions based on my own self-interest, and I don't need to be attached to a man. I don't need to be sexualized in any way in the film. Something I just really appreciated, and, and I can't speak highly enough of these female characters which I is why I think Black Panther's strongest note for me is a is a movie of female empowerment as as much and as good as it often talks make starts conversations about race politics as well it does it does both but for me the female aspect is stronger yeah i mean i i totally agree i think it was it was uh it was very very strong uh in that regard and i think it it definitely says something about the trend that we're going towards in action movies where it's really not as as out of the ordinary to see such strong female characters in a big budget movie like this. Um, I think it, it bodes well for the future. Agreed, and I and I can only imagine where these roles are going to go in the future. As a bit of speculation, I've heard that it's possible if if Iron Man is ousted in one of the next two Avengers movies, that Letitia Wright's character could take over Iron Man. Which Whoa. is which is crazy. That'd be so cool. As much yeah. as I love Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark and Iron Man. Anyway, the kind of last thing I want to talk about in terms of a of a big role, and we've touched on it a little bit already, is the superhero elements of the movie. We've talked a lot about these characters, and I think it speaks to the genre blending that you mentioned back at the beginning. But I do want to take a moment and talk about the superhero action of the film, the special effects, and things of that nature, and get your thoughts on those because. At the end of the day, this is a superhero film, and it needs to have these superhero elements to be a good one. I think it definitely delivers in those um, the, those areas. I mean, I loved the the, the scenes on the with the sort of uh, I guess was it a casino where they were trying to ferret out um, yep. law, a South Korean um, casino. Yep. Yeah, and you get a car chase, and again, sort of the almost these James Bond like. Um, elements but again you know i i don't think i think that um the special effects maybe were a bit dialed back and i think that's what i appreciated that uh it was just more real and human um in most of the battle scenes you know of course at the end um and 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 then and and again in the one-on-one um you didn't like the giant rhinoceros that was a huge special the effect. <laughs> the giant CG rhinoceros. You didn't. Oh, you didn't yeah. love that. <laughs> true. True. Well, well, we'll talk about some some, uh, some CG monsters in our next movie um, a little bit more. But uh, but yeah, uh, I thought that uh, it, 
as far as an action movie um, goes, it will definitely uh, it will de- it definitely delivers all of the thrills that you are um, used to getting from these type of movies, uh, even if it does so in a slightly different package than uh, we are accustomed to seeing in these movies. Yeah, I will say that, unfortunately, I think Marvel might be getting a reputation of being a little bit cheap on some of their special effects. I don't know if, if this stuck out to you, but there's there's the one scene where Killmonger is burning the, the garden of the heart-shaped herb. And right. that fire is awful. Like, <laughs> what was that? That's is really bad. <laughs> I didn't. I did not notice that. But um, well, if you see it, I, if you do find yourself in the theater watching it again, just keep an eye out for it. It's like okay. it's terrible. It's really bad, in my opinion. And and I I didn't really catch many other moments. I've heard that like the CG for the final fight between T'Challa and Killmonger is something that wasn't that great. Although I, I didn't notice it personally. I was more odd by the in, the interesting choice to do aerial combat which i think is always a very weird yeah. thing to do in a in a fight scene especially for characters who don't fly i thought that was a strange choice as they were like falling through the mountain the vibranium right. mountain that they were doing that but to talk more generally about the action i do want to reiterate that i think the the combat that we see is different and that's something that i really appreciated about this movie even if like the set pieces that we that I just mentioned, like the the fight between T'Challa and Killmonger wasn't like some of the best one-on-one battles I've ever seen. The ones earlier in the movie are really good. So you mentioned them about the fight with, uh, I believe it's M'Baku, and then the fight, the first fight with Killmonger. I think those are two really, really outstanding scenes in terms of the, the combat. But then the final battle, as cool as that Wakandan plane is, I thought um, it, it didn't... The biggest moments didn't strike with me. The, the, my favorite moments in, the, in those fights, for example, was seeing Shuri out on the battlefield using some gauntlets and shooting, you know, energy blasts. And, and the, actually, the kind of the two-on-one fight that Shuri and, I believe it's Nakia have with Killmonger. That was my favorite part of that scene because I thought that was a really cool one. Yeah, I'll say too, the action is like, it is very well shot, um, and the reason why I think that stood out to me was because one of the first action scenes in the movie... Um, yep. Is like takes place in the forest at night and it's super dark yep. and I really honestly I had no idea what was going on in the in the scene and I thought is it going to be like this the entire time and it was the exact opposite um, I thought that <laughs> yeah. uh, all of the action was really very clear um, it was very easy to tell what was going on um, and, and just very well shot in general yep agreed for the agreed on, uh, for a vast majority of it I, I definitely agree with that I think I don't really have too much to add on that front so. Why don't we go ahead and start a little wrap-up phase? Did you have a favorite scene or moment from Black Panther? I'm curious what, what, what it might be for you. Uh, I think I'm going to go with the, the scene that I mentioned earlier um, where he's in the, the, what is the ancestry realm? or Ancestral what, what realm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, where, where, where we see T'Challa really having this change of heart about, um, and, and really coming to terms with who his father really was and what, his father did um in uh you know just in abandoning um killmonger uh and, and and in killing killmonger's father and his own brother um i again i think that this was um a chadwick boseman's strongest bit of acting by far in the movie um and i think that it really got to the core of what made this movie different and why this movie is what will stick with you probably a little bit longer uh than a typical superhero movie uh, does because it does have more to say um, than good beats evil. 
That's very yeah, yeah. yeah that's very fair. It's a, it's a strong scene. For me, we haven't talked about this at all, but I really liked the comedy in this film. I I go back and forth sometimes with the superhero comedy aspects. Recently, I think Marvel's done really well. Like Thor Ragnarok was a really funny movie. And this one is also right up there. As, as much as this is a serious, you talked about this movie taking itself very seriously. There are also some great uh, comedic moments in this film. You talked about the scene in the woods with at the beginning that first kind of fight scene where there's the joke about he never freezes, and then you get the follow up later when a, a Koye jokes with the rest of his family that he froze like an antelope in headlights. That was a great line. Right. I also like some of the stuff with Martin Freeman as he, he's sort of this outsider and. Um, he, he, you know, he doesn't really know what's going on when he gets roped into this conflict that's going on in Wakanda. So there's a lot of good, like fish out of water, yep, yeah, sort of humor with with Martin Freeman's character. Yeah, that character is actually kind of historically a very blundery character in the comics. Like he's kind of uh-huh. a he's kind of a punchline in the comics. He actually is, is given a more serious note in this film than the comics represent him, which is interesting. Um, but Martin Freeman, we didn't really talk about him at all. But I thought he did a very good he did a good job for what he had to do and. Yeah, he wasn't given much. He was kind of just there, which is some of the complaints about his character in this movie that he didn't really do anything. But yeah, no, I, I don't. I don't necessarily agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, but anyway, for my favorite scene is going to be a comedic scene, and it's the one. It's one very early on between Shuri and T'Challa when Shuri is showing him all the new tech that she has for him, and there's the moment where she videotapes him kicking the suit the second time. Yeah. Uh, and it, he, it blasts him backwards because the suit is designed to absorb <laughs> kinetic energy. I couldn't stop laughing <laughs> after that moment because it was, it was yeah. so funny. And a uh, moment where I got to see Shuri, who was, as I mentioned, my favorite character of the film. All right. Time to give some ratings. Scott, what would you give in terms of a score for Black Panther? Well, all I have to say is Wakanda forever. I'm giving this movie uh, an eight. An eight. All right. That's a solid score. Coming in a little bit below the critic average. This does have like 88 on Metacritic. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not going to say it's the greatest movie of all time. Like apparently Ron Tomatoes is saying right now. Oh, yeah, that's true. I, I sent you that picture of, uh, yeah. I think it was like a week ago or whatever. Some some algorithm that Rotten Tomato is using has Black Panther as the greatest film of all time, which I was like, even if this ends up being true, like 10, like, and everyone believes that like 10 years from now, like it is bizarre that they're using this algorithm to say that like, three movies from the last year are in like the top 10 movies of yeah. all time or something like that. I'm like this, your algorithm seems a little bit off, but anyway, I, I'm also actually going to come in a little bit under the, the Metacritic average, which kind of surprised me. Cause I'm someone who's usually very positive on superhero movies, but that speaks to how well received this film is. And it is a good movie. I'm coming in right in at a solid 8.5. As I mentioned, I think that this film does a lot really well. The, the female characters are fantastic. Uh, Michael B. Jordan's acting is phenomenal. But I did have some some issues with the character arc, character development, some of which we didn't get to discuss today. But that being said, 8.5, still a great score, still a great movie, and I'm very positive on it. If you want to hear more about Black Panther, Jay Habib and I did an entire spoiler cast on it, which you can find on our podcast feed from about a week and a half ago or two weeks ago now. And if you're more interested here, we break that down scene by scene, so check that out if you're interested. But if you haven't seen Black Panther, it is totally worth watching. But why don't we now take a short break, and when we return, we'll be talking about sci-fi thriller Annihilation. We'll be right back.
Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Next up on our discussion list is Annihilation, released just last week on February 23rd. Annihilation is directed by Alex Garland, and it's his follow-up debut to 2015's Ex Machina, where he also collaborated, collaborated with Oscar Isaac, although he plays a much smaller role in this film. And this time, there are a few more actors as well. So I believe there are only like three or four actors in Ex Machina. There are a few more in this one. And Natalie Portman headlines the movie as Lena, a biologist and ex-army soldier whose husband, played by Oscar Isaac, has disappeared for the last year into something that we learn is called the Shimmer. When he returns, he isn't the same, and so to learn more, a new expedition enters the Shimmer, including Jennifer Jason Lee, who plays Dr. Ventress, Gina Rodriguez, who plays Anya, Tessa Thompson as Josie, and Tuva Novotny as Cass Shepard. Scott, I think we both called this film a doozy after leaving the theater in the last couple days. And I don't know about you, but I have a lot to say, and I'm still processing it, too, at the same time. So I want to be very careful up front here with spoilers, because so much of our discussion, I think, in the, in the latter half of this conversation is going to be all about spoilers. But what did you think of this one? Well, yeah, uh, you know, it is a lot about spoilers, I think. Um, so, you know, just to answer sort of the baseline question of, is this movie worth seeing for people who have not seen it yet? Uh, Absolutely yes. Um, if you are a fan of uh, Ex Machina or of uh, just mind-bending sci-fi movies in general, I, you know I even thought about some of Christopher Nolan's more uh, sci-fi works like Inception or like uh, Interstellar, for example. Um, when I watched this movie, um, it, you know if you like sci-fi in general, you're gonna be a huge fan of this movie, or at the very least, um, be mesmerized um, by watching it, even if you don't fully go along with it. Um, but I think uh, Alex Garland um, is establishing himself as one of the smartest filmmakers um, in sci-fi or in any genre, really, um, between this movie and Ex Machina now, too. Like, I think that I thought that Ex Machina was uh, a fantastic film, and I think this one all but matches it. Um, for the most part. Um, at, beforehand, we were talking about this movie a little bit, and I called it sort of the sci-fi Blair Witch. Um, and I think, uh, maybe it's just because I love the Blair Witch Project, but I was definitely struck uh, multiple times in this movie by the similarities in plot um, to the Blair Witch Project in the sense that you have the uh, you know this limited group of characters going into this forest jungle like area to try and investigate a mysterious circumstance that has befallen um you know other individuals and and there's really not a lot of um testimony or evidence of what's what's gone on inside you know in in um black in um blair witch you're talking about the black river forest and in this movie you're talking about the shimmer um and yeah i think it 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 really delivers um all of the uh it it delivers a lot of action and violence like i was i wasn't sure how much action we were going to get from this movie because um ex machina was kind of a slow burn um in terms of uh when it actually when all of the uh the craziness started to go down was definitely towards the back half of this movie um but you definitely get some very sort of almost jurassic park like action in this uh in this jungle forest setting um so it's also a great um action movie um in addition to being a movie that really challenges your mind especially in the last 20 minutes um i think there are some great performances um and i guess the one filmmaking thing which i want to say from a filmmaking perspective is i love how efficient 
this movie is with its storytelling. A hundred percent. I this is one of the things that struck me so so much. Like literally within twenty minutes, twenty five minutes, like we have all the major characters have been established. Like the the we know exactly what they're doing. We know what their end goal is. Um, we know where what all the storylines are. Like and yet it, nothing feels rushed at all. And so I think when a filmmaker is able to be so efficient in its storytelling and really set up everything so perfectly in such a short amount of time without rushing it, um, it really speaks to the quality of the filmmaking. Um, and I thought that that was maybe the strongest element of this movie because after 20 minutes, there I mean, they're here, all of these characters are going into the shimmer. We know exactly why they're doing what we're doing and like we're ready to go along with it. Yeah, I'm, I will push back that I don't think we know it all of why they're doing it in terms of like motivation not, not all of why but we, yeah. they, he, he sets them up sure. perfectly uh, for us to learn more about them down the road absolutely and that's it's I kind of I kind of like to would like to bunch that in with like that is like his filmmaking I don't know expertise I think Ex Machina as much of a slow burn as it was in terms of how like in terms of its pacing and maybe what it was trying to accomplish like I still felt like the film was very efficient like it wasn't a very long film if I remember correctly. No, and, and I think he's good at working with small casts, too. You know, you said that this movie does have more characters um, than Ex Machina, which only had three, but it does have a very limited cast as well. Um, yep. And I think that that's another area where, where yeah, he uh, he he works well. Um, he's very efficient. Yeah, he and it lets him be very efficient, right? He doesn't have to, like, yeah. jumble together, uh, you know, two handfuls of characters that are going to be relevant mm-hmm. for the next two hours. He... He gets a handful, one handful, or maybe a little bit less sometimes, and he does really well with it, and it's something I really appreciate. Talking about my general impressions, I think that, wow, yeah, this this film, it, it really takes off quickly, and I really liked the opening segment of this film. I, I wasn't sure, like, I knew where it was going to end up, right, because the trailers make it very clear that they're going to go into the shimmer, right, like... That's where most of this film is going to take place, and I wasn't sure how well it was going to set that up, but I thought it did a really good job. I I liked the flitting back and forth between like the what, what we'll call the present when she when Natalie Portman's character Lena is being interviewed by the uh, the scientist who's kind of in charge of the facility, who I believe is played by Benedict Wong. Benedict Wong, yeah, yeah, good. yeah, and I I really liked that that style and it's not a style that I always love in films because it can be very heavy-handed sometimes in terms of like when it's like breaking up tension and action but I really appreciated it in this film I thought the acting for the most part was pretty good although for me not the standout part of this film the standout part of this film is the storytelling certainly yeah and I agree. the way the plot unravels is very very good for the most part and the realizations that I have in the film whether I'm having them more quickly than others or whether I'm having slower than others, I don't know. But it but it happened over the course of the film. And it happened... like di- di- I pieced some things together after the film, of course, because this film really challenges you in the last part. But I really love a film that very cleverly unrolls its plot elements throughout the film. And this movie ranks right up there with, I'm thinking in particular, like uh, the sci-fi film from... A previous year with Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner, um, Arrival, like that. That was a film that yeah. un- unraveled its plot elements very, very expertly, and I thought that Alex Garland did a just as good, if not a better job, than De- Dennis Villeneuve did in that movie. 
and I'm sure we're going to talk more about those when we talk about spoilers. So I just want to say that the storytelling is phenomenal, even if it's not perfect in little in, in certain areas. Yeah, no, I also enjoyed the um, the the structure, of the flashback um, sequences, just because I think it does really add an air of mystery to what went on. Because we, it's not really a who done it. Uh, for example, it's more of a why done it because we know exactly what. We know pretty much what has happened. We know what characters have survived um, from about the first 10 minutes of this movie. Um, but we don't know exactly what, what went down, um, why, uh, why these, some of these characters perhaps did not make it out, and why um, Natalie Portman is still there answering questions. Um, so I think that it really adds to the, the air of mystery um, that really drives the plot along um, as, as these characters are in the show. Absolutely, and to speak a little bit more about the filmmaking before we do move on to some more specifics, I think that I really loved the colors of this film. I, I get it, right? Yes. Like it's it's called the shimmer, and so you're gonna get some like shimmery effects on the filmmaking. But does he, Alex Garland, and whoever the cinematographer is for this film, do such a wonderful job of setting up the the visual nature of the shimmer and the kind of swamp jungle forest environment? that we get for most of the film at the end of the setting changes a little bit, but that for the most part really resonated with me. I was constantly, you know, kind of amazed by the, by the filmmaking quality on the screen in terms of the visuals. Um, I'm not necessarily speaking in terms of the effects, although I think the effects are also very good, uh, but just the cinematography, the angles that a lot of the scenes are shot from all were very, very strong for me. Yeah, definitely agree. Yeah, and then the last part, again, kind of talking more general broad strokes, is the soundtrack, the score, very, very good for me. It reminded me a lot of, so like, for most of the film, you're getting these kind of guitar, I, these guitar sounds, I guess, like kind of like just guitar plucking a lot of the times, and it reminded me a lot of this, of one of my favorite video games in the last few years, is a, post, is a post-apocalyptic game called The Last of Us, where the entire soundtrack is very much in the same vein of, you know, guitar, like light guitar strumming in the background that really sets the tone. And I loved it. And then I thought the switch at the end to a more of a, a metal kind of, I, I almost want to call it like a, a Howard Shore kind of overwhelming music at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's, so like, there's so little dialogue at the end. I thought it was, it was so well done. Uh, yeah. I agree. It gets it gets very eerie at the end. Yeah, that's a great way to describe the it. Plot itself gets eerier as well. Um, so so yeah, and I also like you, you know talking about the visuals. I think this movie, like again, contrasting it with the movie like Blair Witch, um, which I think is just very claustrophobic. I think that this movie starts out very sort of expansive with its visuals, and there's a lot of light um, and you know a lot of colors as you mentioned. But as they move deeper into the shimmer like things get darker and i mean even when they're on the beach towards the end of this movie it's everything's very dark um yep. and every all, the colors change to like very neutral like blacked and grays um so yeah i thought that uh, the progression with the visuals was great as well absolutely all right i think it's time to, to kind of jump into more specifics we're going to stay no spoilers for at least some part of this next part but i'd love to talk about the acting right so maybe not necessarily the characters which we're going to get to but the acting, so I mentioned some of the names at the beginning, but Natalie Portman, Jennifer Jason Lee, um, 
I believe Gina Rodriguez, Tessa Thompson, Tuva Novotny, and then Oscar Isaac for to some degree, but those are some of the characters that we have in this film. Yeah, I thought that um, Natalie Portman's performance in particular uh, was probably the standout for me. I mean, obviously she is the lead character, but I think that, you know, we talk a lot about actors. We've talked on previous episodes even about actors taking risks with their roles and not just doing the same sort of role over and over again. And I think, you know, we've talked about actors who, you know, perhaps don't take as many risks anymore. But I think that this is not a role which we are accustomed to seeing Natalie Portman playing at all. Um, you know, we don't see her in a lot of action movies. We don't see her in a lot of sci-fi movies. Um, but I think that she is a very compelling actress. Um, so I was really glad uh, to see her sort of branch out with this role. And I think that she brings a great intensity um, as well as a great... She, she brings a lot of heart to this character as well um, in a movie where a lot of the characters are very sort of stone-faced and, you know, uh, they have one goal in mind. Uh, I think that she is really the, the beating heart. Her character is really the beating heart at the center of this this movie. Um, so I thought that she did an excellent job with that. Um, yeah, I think Oscar Isaac is great. Uh, he makes um, a very good use of his um, minimal screen time. Um, and I also thought Jennifer Jason... Lee, um, who, you know, was I, it was kind of interesting to see her in this role because the last movie I saw her in was The Hateful Eight, uh, where she her character was just insane and off the wall. Um, and here she's just sort of this very quietly commanding like presence as uh, this doctor who is um, uh, leading Ventress, Doctor Ventress, who is leading the uh, the patrol into the Shimmer, um, and she's a character that. Uh, you don't know a lot about uh, a, a lot about um, when they go into the Shimmer, but that as things slowly start to reveal, um, you start to understand her character a lot more and why she's doing um, what she's doing and why she's so single-minded in her pursuit of whatever is discovering whatever is at the heart of the Shimmer. Um, so I thought that, uh, it, you know, like I said, quietly, quietly is, is the way I would describe her performance. She sort of goes about her business, but she's a very commanding presence um, at all times throughout this movie. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have Gina Rodriguez, who is this very brash, very in-your-face sort of character, um, which I think, again, works perfectly with the dynamic of uh, what we see going on um, between the, 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 the way that the relationships between the characters evolve throughout the movie. Like, Again, drawing comparison to Blair Witch, uh, you know, it's not just about what is going on, like what they're trying to discover, what's going on in the Shimmer, what's going on with the Blair Witch. It's about what effect that has on these people as they they, they quest and things start to seem maybe more hopeless and maybe more futile. So I think it's important that you get these characters, you get both sides of the spectrum. You get a Jennifer Jason Lee who is a very quietly commanding again and then you have gina rodriguez who is very in your face very brash and so you know that there's going to be some kind of conflict with them as things progress um so yeah i thought that these characters were set up perfectly and i thought that uh they 
were very ably cast. I don't think Tessa Thompson perhaps did as much with her role um, as I was expecting because I have enjoyed her in other movies in the past. Um, but overall, very strong from an acting perspective. Yeah, I, I really appreciated the diversity of characters. And you mentioned it between Gina Rodriguez and Jennifer Jason Lee's characters. And in terms of the heart that Natalie Portman kind of injects into the movie, I totally agree. Like, she really set, she sets the tone really well in the movie, right? Like, you get a lot of different, I think, tonal moments in this film. And Natalie Portman drives a lot of that for me. So that's something I really appreciated that I don't know if, I mean, obviously characters are important for tone of a film. That's not, like, not an insightful statement. But to the degree to which she influences that tone or matches or mirrors that tone is something that I think she did a particularly good job in doing i don't know if that if you agree with that or not but totally yeah i I agree yeah and so i mean the acting i i think you've said a lot and i agree with most of it i think that gina rodriguez is very over the top um i haven't seen her anything else i don't think unless i've seen her and not realized it but she plays tv it's made the version on tv which is her her biggest role obviously to date um very very uh very well known for that role but yeah you know i think she is over the top but i think that again i think that the movie calls for that i don't oh, think that absolutely. it's a criticism on her performance no it's not no especially yeah, if yeah. so I'll, I'll 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 tiptoe around some spoilers here but there's a particular scene in the movie where if she weren't an over-the-top character that scene would have fallen so flat and i think you might be talking about my favorite scene in the movie but oh we'll boy all right we'll get to it then i can't wait um, but yeah, it, you know, at that point, why don't we say the next section, we're going to start talking about spoilers because we had a lot to say about the acting, but before we revisit your favorite scenes and, and maybe some of the more plot elements, I'd love to talk the themes of this movie. There are tons of symbols throughout this film, some of which you don't even necessarily understand as symbols until much later in the film. And I was, I just have so much appreciation and so much love for the themes that this movie explores, the way it explores them, and also the symbols it uses in the film to explore them. I'd love to just, before I start just gushing and talking nonstop about this, I'd love to get to get your impressions of the themes of, to, to use the film's title, Annihilation, and also kind of symmetrical to that, themes of duplication and growth. Yeah, I know, you know, I think that when it's all said and done, this is not a very happy cheery movie not that that's something you would really expect from alex garland or you know if you've seen the trailers for this movie um i think that it 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 does have sort of a a look on uh our future perhaps um especially even up to the final shot of this movie um but you know i admit i i i'm still you know mystified with a lot of the you know I, i was obviously i was able to piece together all of the plot elements um but in terms of relating this movie to the real world or you know to our future perhaps um you know it's still something that i'm thinking about it's still something that i'm working through at this point um but you know obviously was was very um very taken with um the the mind-bending uh, elements that go on in the last 20 minutes or so of this movie yeah the themes of this film i mentioned them as kind of like the annihilation right and also the the duplication something that's just spectacular to me so we're talking spoilers now um just so everyone knows in case we missed that earlier but the 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 idea of oscar isaac's character being like cloned essentially so i I mean we're going to talk about that more probably when we start talking about the ending but that you know that aspect the the and then also the themes of annihilation and obviously the heavy most heavy-handed one is the the scene in the mess hall right where on the video camera you see them cut open the soldier 
and you you see his his internal organs moving almost like they're eels essentially or worms of some sort and then when you see the mess hall in person a few minutes later in the film you see this person has is is gruesome right like you you see this ex- it's like gruesome and beautiful oddly at the same time because this person has has obviously died <laughs> it's very clear um and it's colorful it's so bizarre in that sense and those are the most heavy-handed symbols in the film obviously or examples of the symbols in the film but throughout there are more subtle instances of them and i didn't always notice them at first until later they something similar might reappear and i was like oh this this is what this kind of was referring to or alluding to at the beginning of the film and I don't know. I was just kind of in love with the way the film handled the themes, and and I, I don't think we need to spend too much more time talking about it because I know that yeah. you really want to dip into the the last act of the film once we get to the well, beat. I, oh, I go think ahead. As far as the themes go in general, um, it would definitely benefit with a second watch, um, just because yep. now that I know where it's going. Yep. Um, because the you know I think this is one of those movies where during the first watch you're kind of just trying to figure out what's going on, what's yeah. happening, what's important. Like, yeah exactly and and not not so much what does it mean because it is a movie that is so smart and doesn't it's not going to spell everything out for you like you have to do the 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 mental work on your own just to figure out what is going on yeah Um, so i think that definitely the you know a second watch would probably help me to comprehend maybe the more profound things that this movie is saying overall Absolutely, and to that point, I don't think I've been more compelled to go see a movie again, at least in this way, since probably Inception um, from Chris Nolan, and I walked out of the theater, and you know, I'm not a horror guy, and there are some horror elements in this film, but I wanted to, I wanted to go see it again. Uh, I really did, because I wanted to unpack some of the things, and as I was walking out of the, the theater, more things were striking me, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and this film just does such a good job, and in a really clever, brilliant way of, as I mentioned kind of at the beginning, unraveling its plot, letting you figure out what's important in the film. I think that not every movie does that well. And and this isn't a movie, but one thing that I've been watching recently, which we'll talk about very briefly later, is Altered Carbon, which tries to be really smart. And it doesn't do it in a clever way, I don't think. It's trying to be too smart, maybe. And this film is not too smart. It delivers it's plot elements that are very complicated and want you to think incredibly well. And I'm glad you mentioned it. All right. So let's go ahead. Let's go ahead. And now we're going to be talking about nothing but spoilers, I think, because we're going to dive into the final act or the second half of the movie, depending on how you, depending on where you want to start. And let's really unpack the meteor aspects of this film. Where would you like to start? Well, I'm just, I, I, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are, on what goes on with Oscar Isaac's character and what we find out about, how exactly he met his demise, so to speak. Right, so, okay, so jump in if I'm getting anything wrong here, but the big reveal for Oscar Isaac's character, probably with like 15 minutes left in the movie, is that he may have actually killed himself, right? So he uses a phosphorus grenade. Oh, yeah, I think he definitely did. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, there's a... Sure, I think that is one interpretation. I think there are several yeah. interpretations of this, actually. But... The, the Oscar Isaac has killed himself, or at least that's what you see on screen. He uses a phosphorus grenade to blow himself up in the lighthouse. So he made it all the way to the lighthouse, and then he killed himself. But the big reveal is at the end of it, right? Because, I mean, you're watching this, and you're like, but Oscar Isaac is back in Area X. Right. 
And that's actually his clone that is back in area. Right. I so guess is the reveal. Yeah. yeah. The reveal is there's another version of Kane who is played by Oscar Isaac, and basically the implication being, especially given the next few minutes of the film, is that clone is I don't have a better word for it other than alien. Right. So like this this alien has cloned has taken on the appearance of Oscar Isaac. But it's so much more complicated than that, right? Because it's not just a matter of taking on Oscar Isaac's appearance. He has taken this alien, if this is what we want to call it, has taken on Oscar Isaac's like actual form. This alien is still very sick. Like we we know that the Oscar Isaac, the cane that is back in Area X in the hospital in an isolation chamber is dying and is very close to death. So it's not just a matter of like this alien taking over Oscar Isaac's form and reinserting himself or the aliens uh, into the world, right, and, and infiltrating the world that way. Because Oscar, the, the cane that we know is back in Area X, like we've been told is like close to death yeah. and barely alive on a ventilator, I believe. And so like what exactly is happening here is very confusing. And this film asks the question very explicitly, like, what is going on? Like, what did the alien... If this if this is an alien, which it very much seems like it is, right? Like, that's every every well, she, appearance. And she even tells the doctor at the end, or, or he says something about, so it was an alien. Right, right. And and uh, Natalie Portman, I think, says she isn't sure. She doesn't know. Yeah. Um, But this alien... Like, the question of what does the alien want is not one that this movie answers. If And if it does answer it, it's that the alien doesn't really want anything. I don't know if that perspective or, that I just gave. Or given, maybe what it wants is the alien wants to be like us, to take on our form, uh, you know, to, to adopt the form of another human. Because then we see it happens again with Natalie Portman's character, like right after that. But I'm just like interested to know, like, why I, I, the thing I keep thinking about is why did things go differently when Natalie Portman? I mean, obviously, what happens is she takes the grenade and places it in the hands of the clone. Yep. Um, and it then detonates, and but then it destroys everything. So is it? I guess we're supposed to say that the fact that she destroyed this clone is but, why I think it's everything the alien. gets destroyed. Because Oscar Isaac essentially did the same thing, so except that he killed himself. So I, I'm just wondering what exactly is it about killing this clone, uh, which ends up destroying the entire like shimmer, like making it all go away. Uh, like considering that Oscar Isaac did the exact same thing detonating a phosphorus grenade you know except that he killed himself yeah so to unpack this a little bit maybe i'm actually so let's do this piece by piece i actually think you see this alien transformation three times i don't know if you caught this or not but when the the second time is when natalie portman walks down into the i guess the meteor site in underground when she walks down there i don't know if you caught this or not but jennifer jason lee's character that's not that's not the human version of Jennifer Jason Lee. That uh, is... I didn't catch that, but now that you mentioned it, that does make sense. Because the the first shot that you see of Dr. Ventress in that scene is her eyes not fully formed yet. The skin is right. over her eyes, which is what you see a few minutes later when Natalie, when Natalie Portman touches the alien. Right. How it, its initial form... It, it isn't, she doesn't, the alien doesn't instantly become Natalie Portman. It takes like a moment to form. And when the first shot of Jennifer Jason Lee in that scene is the exact same as that. Okay. And so you actually, so the character that then kind of erupts, literally, like starts spitting the shimmer out of her mouth, essentially, 
is isn't Doctor Ventress because that scene initially very much confused me about like okay this is a really weird turn at the end here for this doctor to be explode like literally exploding yeah and when we then see the same kind of initial eye formation with natalie portman's with the alien with natalie portman it made more sense to me because it's not it's not like dr ventress's character has either already died or something else, or just something else has happened. Yeah, well, that's there. even more interesting to me then. So, because why is it then when Jennifer Jason Lee's clone is, explodes, why doesn't that have the same effect as when Natalie Portman's clone is is blown up? So I, so I'm wondering about that as well, and I think that a lot of it has to do with Jennifer Jason Lee's body being an imperfect host for the alien, like cause, mm-hmm. because we know that Doctor Ventress has cancer, right? And I think oh, yeah, that the yeah. alien re- like. I don't think the alien dies. I think the alien is like rejecting the form because then the alien reforms, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. That. That. I mean, that's another question I have. Is I guess it is just a. It is a single alien being that is just duplicating itself in different forms. Right. It's unclear to me how many aliens there are. Yeah. I don't get. I'm not. I. I haven't figured that out. I don't know if there's going to be an answer to that question even. But well, to I the, guess there's not really that many because no one really made it out of the Shimmer except for. Oscar Isaac's character, and we don't really see anyone else around while they're in there. Right. I think. I think what. So sorry. I'm gonna, again. I'm going to break this down part by part. I think one thing that I realized about halfway through the film, especially when we when I talked about the mess hall person, that person, when we see that person's dead, what we what we learn is that the like death of things leads to this really colorful kind of moss like substance, and so I think you see a lot of death. True, throughout yeah. the film because you see that color come up a lot and that kind of yeah. array of things come up a lot and so in that sense i think you see a lot of death and to kind of go back to your original question of the what, what was your question a, a little while ago that i about well just about why jennifer jason lee's character's death doesn't have the same effect or why the clone's death doesn't have the same effect as when natalie portman's clone yes dies. exactly right so so that so the answer to that question is i think that the clone is the clone the alien if you will isn't dying in that sense it's rejecting but then when we talk about the phosphorus grenade killing the alien right versus when kane oscar isaac's character dies i don't have a good answer for that and i and i yet i mean i'm, I'm gonna definitely go see this movie again first first thing i i haven't had time to see it yet because i saw it last night for the first time but i think my best guess right now is that i don't know if the shimmer would have died if it hadn't like it, it ended up burning out the entire lighthouse the entire structure the alien structure of the lighthouse and if the alien hadn't gone down the the meteor hole back to its like home or whatever I'm not sure if the Shimmer would have died because I, I think the alien dying wouldn't have been the end of the Shimmer, because you see down in the comment hole that it's like a it's like a self, I don't know it, it, the it, the structure is like alive, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think that it's only because the alien while burning went down into the structure or like touched the wall of the lighthouse that it happened like that. I think that's not a great answer because Oscar Isaac does blow himself up in that way. Granted, he doesn't like touch the wall or anything. He just kind of sits there and burns in the scene. So it's it's. I think it's a weak answer, but it's the best one that I have right now for that question. Well, I, you know, and maybe again, maybe this doesn't technically explain it, um, but like in terms of the movie, I think you know you have these characters who sort of self destruct upon themselves. Oh, absolutely. With 
you know, Oscar Isaac's character sort of, you know, undergoes this meltdown while he's in the shimmer. Yep. Um, and that's the main you know, theme. The, self, the, the self-destruction. Is... The person open. Jennifer Jason Lee's character obviously is going through this sort of meltdown, but I think that Natalie Portman's character, by taking the grenade and not, you know, blowing herself up, but placing it in the hands of the clone, she's sort of saying, I'm not going to let the shimmer get the best of me. Um, like, because, you know, all along what she tells the doctor is, uh, like, she's cut, she's got to come back out. Like, she's here so she can, she can come back out um, because she wants to help her husband. Um, yep. So I think that maybe by her taking the initiative um, and saying she's not going to let shimmer this alien whatever get the best of her and she's going to fight back by placing the grenade in the clone's hand maybe they're you know the movie is saying well there's something a little different here and that's why it ultimately has the the effect uh that it does because she's sort of being rebellious yeah she is being rebellious and i think we're going to try to tie a lot of threads together here but i did want to talk about and i think this connects back to what we're just what we were just saying what you were just saying I do want to talk about a couple of weaknesses of the film because this film we've we've only praised this film and I do want to talk about some of the things it doesn't do as well. And first for me is actually this kind of the motivations of Natalie Portman. We mentioned at the beginning that Alex Garland is very efficient and I love his his style for that. And I don't mind not having a fleshed out backstory for characters that doesn't bother me that much. But I think that the motivations that exist for Natalie Portman aren't compelling for me. They're they're very thin. Like, to, to kind of delve into a topic that we haven't talked about yet, is that the, the motivations for Natalie Portman's character is supposed to be that she feels this guilt about cheating on her husband. Yeah. And she wants to correct that. And this is kind of played out through some flashbacks from before, um, from before her husband left to go into the Shimmer. And for me, it, it doesn't do it for me. I don't, just don't get, like, I get feeling guilt and obviously people are complicated. Like, you can love someone, I mean, or at least I think this film is trying to say this, like, you can love someone and cheat on them and feel bad about it, etc. Like, that, that's clearly what this film is saying. But for me, I just thought it was, a, it was one of the weaker points of the movie. I don't know if you agree with that. Well, okay, well, here's a question that I have regarding that. Do you, did you get the impression, because I certainly did, that Oscar Isaac had basically figured out that she was having an affair? Oh yeah, no. I think the movie want like the movie basically yeah, says yeah. that, right? Doesn't doesn't Doctor Ventress say that like, oh yeah, people are all, everyone self destructs, right? Some people ruin a good marriage, implying yeah, that well, like Oscar I Isaac think, knew about that. I was thinking, yeah. Well, I was thinking more about the actual scene where he is leaving. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Like Definitely. to go to the shimmer, and he says something like, "I still love you." Or something. I think that's what he says. "I still love you," um, basically implying, yep. "Oh, I know what's happening." So I think that that adds to why Natalie Portman's motivation, why it did work for me, because not only is it that she has cheated on her husband, but it's that he has discovered it, and this is the last thing in his mind, like his last memory of her so to speak is that she cheated on him and then he goes to the shimmer and is never seen again um so i think i don't know to, to sort of restore him to restore that relationship to what it was because obviously it did have a really strong relationship at one point um I, it worked it works for me as a motivation maybe it was just that one fact yeah and, and i get that and i i'm not saying that it's not like it doesn't follow well. I'm just saying I thought yeah. it was the it was a weaker part of the film. Mm-hmm. And 
and I do want to say that like the 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 lack of a backstory or back of background on characters isn't what bothered me. I just thought that this was this was a bit thin for me. That's just me. Fair enough, yeah. And the other kind of one problem I had, and this is now kind of disconnecting from what we were talking about before, is the develop the the very quick development of Josie's character going from oh it reflect the the shimmer refracts light to the shimmer refracts literally everything including DNA like that discovery happened very quickly yeah i think that that character in general is, was just kind of at yeah. arm's length through for me throughout the entire movie like you couldn't really get a good sense of what was going on in the character's head um i, I don't know there was just sort of a disconnect for her, uh, between all the all the other characters and her, yeah, and she's a very different character than everyone else, and, and and you could argue she's the only person, well, of the people who die, who die a peaceful death, right? Yeah. Like she becomes one with with the Shimmer, essentially, right? Yeah, to, to use a Star Wars phrase, I guess. Anyway, yeah, I thought I thought her character was was a weak, and that 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 realization came very very quickly. It went from like zero to sixty in very in like a couple seconds. Um, anyway, those were my two weaker moments of the film. But did you have any others that were top of your mind in terms of things that you thought the film could have done better? Uh, no, no, I mean, you know, I think Josie's character really was the was the one that sort of stuck out to me. But it was, you know, a minor minor quibble to be sure. All right, I think we we've said a lot and we spent a lot of time dissecting there, and we could we could spend many many more minutes probably dissecting different parts of this film because there are mysteries throughout, including ones that we haven't even touched on. But you alluded to the scene already, and we haven't talked about it yet, so I'm going to give you a few moments to talk about your favorite scene of this film. Oh my gosh, it was so intense. Um, and you know the scene I'm talking about, I'm sure. Absolutely. Um, takes place in the house um, when Gina Rodriguez, first of all, she is, uh, well, she's discovered that, um, that uh, Lena. Kane, Kane is, is Lena's husband. Um, and so she... And, and that Lena has lied about this, and that Ventress has also lied about this because she knew as well. So she's tied up the others um, and like bound and gagged them, and is you know going on this rant. Um, she's so lost her mind. Have, she's gone crazy. Yeah, exa- exactly. She's lost her marbles. We have this sort of internal psychological conflict that's going on between the members of the group, and then all of a sudden which is a strong enough scene on its own, then all of a sudden, halfway through the scene, it turns into another struggle entirely when this... I don't even know how you want to describe the creature, but, like... It's a mutated bear, right? That's what it is? Is that what... Well, yeah, I mean, I guess. It's like... It, it almost reminded me of, like, a warthog or something. But, like, yeah. it bursts into this house, and it takes uh, Gina Rodriguez away. Yeah. Um, Anya, I think. Is her name. Yes, by by evoking somehow evoking the sound of um, I, I, her name's failing me. The other the other um, character who dies, Cass Shepard. Yep. Yes, Shepard. Shepard. Of course, I, I kept getting Mass Effect vibes from her character when they were like <laughs> Shepard, yelling the whole time. But yeah. anyway, uh, side note. But um, but by evoking the voice of Shepard or whatever. Yep. draws Gina Rodriguez out here. Um, so then it becomes the creature bursts into the home, and we have Josie, and we have Ventress, and we have Lena, who are all tied to the chair and basically have to remain totally still um, in order to not alert the creature to their presence. And it's you know it is coming right up to them. It's getting in their face. 
it's this huge, ugly, like, I, I don't know. The, 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 the it's a monster. Itself, it's a monster, yeah, basically. You have to see it for yourself, but it's very well designed, constructed, whatever you want to say, just for the maximum impact of, like, being just gross and, like, vile and evil. And But it, it was just such an intense moment because they have to remain so still and so silent so that they, the creature won't be alerted. And then, of course all hell does end up breaking loose. Uh, but I thought it was just an amazing scene. First of all, like I said, the way it, it twisted from the psychological conflict to the actual physical conflict halfway through, and then just in terms of the sustained suspense that it's able to have throughout the scene, um, I thought was exceptionally well done. Yeah, definitely speaks to the more horror, thriller elements of this movie, uh, which, I don't know, I wasn't expecting to see as much, but which I was very surprised and very uh, pleased by it but this scene in particular was definitely the showstopper for me at about halfway through the movie yeah that's pr- i mean in terms of just everything losing control in that scene absolutely and, and for me i think we're going to be in agreement about what my what my favorite scene is if i had to pick another one i just you could almost pick any scene where you know you're you're getting the visuals of the shimmer and you get you get the visual effects you get everything my i just i can't think of a better scene in the film than the one you've described so it's hard for me to even come up with i I guess you could say like the the scene in the lighthouse right just because so much stuff is happening and so much is challenging your mind it's a good scene but i think yeah go ahead well i just think that it speaks to the film as a whole because i also had the thought before that scene happened of like you know this movie isn't like like it's 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 all it's all one for if that makes any sense like there's not like moments that stand out really it's it's all just about their journey yep um so yeah you know i just thinking about what was going to be the standout moment for me like i at at one point in the movie it definitely would have been hard for me to just pick out a single moment because i think it just flows so nicely uh throughout the entire movie but for me that one scene is definitely the showstopper Right, and, fa- and fair enough for that because it's truly, it's truly an incredible moment. And one thing that I appreciated about the film is that it didn't lean too hard into horror elements. It, it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't nonstop horror, right? Like I, it, it was, it had fewer horror moments than say something even like it, which I don't even think was entirely a horror movie. But I yeah. just really appreciated the, the only occasional use, the efficient use of horror elements in the film. That's and along the same lines, I was really glad that it didn't get into like super hard sci-fi because at the beginning i was a little worried that we were going to get in over our head with all the sciencey stuff um but again i think that speaks to the efficiency that alex garland um displays in, in making this movie um you know he knows that that a lot of that stuff isn't necessary um so he just strips it down to his bare bones and tells us what we need to know um so i really appreciated that we didn't didn't get into too much of you know, hard sciencey vocab and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, we didn't we didn't get anything like CRISPR or, or something like that. Yeah. Uh, all right, so we have gushed a lot about this, and I could keep talking about other parts of it that I thought were really cool. But let's give it a score. What would you rate Annihilation? Well, I want to leave some room. Although I am very taken with this movie, I want to leave some room because I think that is something that could very well elevate with a repeat viewing, as I said. Yep. Um, and so because I'm still working through some of it, um, I'm going to go with an 8.6. 
because I think there's so much to like. And again, with repeat viewings, I could very well see that number increasing. Yeah, for me, it's still so raw. Like it feels like it feels too soon to be giving this a score almost. So I feel kind of very, very uneasy giving the score. Mm-hmm. And and maybe on a future episode, we'll take like five seconds to maybe amend our score if we see this again in the in theaters. Um, for me, I'm going back and forth about where I land on it, but it's so excellent. It feels like a score doesn't do it justice because even if this film like bombed, it would probably be worth seeing just because of the storytelling elements yeah, and how... It's about the experience for sure. Absolutely. And because of that, I think I'm coming in right around where you're at. I would give it... I think I actually was going to give it an 8.6, so I think we're going to actually level our scores here on 8.6. And and well, the main the main flaws being that some of some of the backstory isn't super fleshed out, and then Josie's a, a weak character who does stick around for a large portion of the movie. And I also thought, as good as Jennifer Jason Lee was, some of the more minor characters don't don't knock your socks off, if you will. Um, yeah. So I think I think an eight point six is, is is very fair, and I and I'm really interested to see how I feel about this in a week's time, especially after a second viewing, if and when that happens. Yeah, definitely go see it, and go see it on the big screen too. Yeah, it's 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 a, it's a film whose visuals are so key to it, and I think that uh, if if you can, if at all possible, go see it in theaters. Especially since you know it's it's being overshadowed by Black Panther at the box office right now. So give it some love. It did have a relatively high budget, on uh, around fifty million, I believe, and it only made fourteen million in its opening weekend, which doesn't bode well for it. And uh, I I need I I need more films like this because I loved it. You know eight. Eight point. I, I've watched films that I haven't loved that I've given higher scores than an eight point six two, but I love this film, and I think it's definitely worth seeing. Yes, absolutely. All right. So as I mentioned, I'm gonna try to work out a time to f- see that movie again in the near future, but I'm going to be regardless. I'm going to be thinking about this one for a really, really long time. So good job for Alex Garland. All right, we're gonna take another short break, and when we come back, we're gonna talk about our discussion topic of the week and some other things we've been watching since the last time we shot an episode. Be right back. Welcome back for part three of today's Some Like It, Scott. Since it's been a month since we last talked about what we've been watching, why don't we spend a few minutes talking about that. Scott, what have you been watching recently? So, uh, something that I have been watching recently, and I, uh, honestly, I didn't even know that this was happening until I saw the first episode pop up on my Netflix the day it came out, um, but I am very, very, very glad um, that it is happening and that uh, we're going to be getting these episodes weekly again. So, and what I'm talking about is the Joel McHale show, as it is now known on Netflix. Um, There's been two episodes there. They're planning on putting out a new episode every Sunday. But of course, what the show is, is it's literally the exact same show as uh, The Soup, which was the, the, um, the comedy news of sort program um, starring Joel McHale that that ran for 10, 12 seasons on E! on the E! Network um, back in like the mid-2000s and like I loved the suit back in the day um, I, I watched 
watched it all the time. I just thought it was hilarious. Um, and, you know, basically the concept of the show, if you've never seen either one of them, is Joel McHale stands in front of a green screen. He plays clips from the week's TV shows, like some of the weirdest stuff. Like, I never would even know that um, a lot of this stuff is on TV, if not for the soup. Um, and it just basically makes fun of the, the crazy and weird stuff that happens on TV every week. Um, and he has celebrity guests, like Kristen Bell was in the last episode. Um, Jason Priestley was in the first episode. Um, uh, and I think Kevin Hart maybe also made an appearance in the first episode. Um, I forget. But, but it is like so faithful to everything like i mean it, it's the same show it is like it, that made the soup great um we even have mankini who is a very lo- loved character back on the days of the soup um he made an appearance at the uh, conclusion of the first episode um and you know i feel like there is more weird and bizarre stuff on tv like more now than ever um and so to have joel back to sift through all of it um, and to put his own uh, unique brand of satire parody um, on it uh, is it's it's very welcome um, to have that once a week. Although you know, honestly, I wish there were more episodes every week. Um, That's fair. But yeah, yeah, it's it's really great. And also to give a brief shout out to another show that I've just started watching on Netflix. Um, it's actually just premiered called Seven Seconds, um, and it is. From created by Vina Sood, who is, who was the creator of um, a very underrated show back in the day, in my opinion, on AMC called The Killing. Yep. Um, that yep. later um, had a final season run on Netflix. Um, but it starred um, Joel Kinnaman, who I believe is um, the star of uh, uh, one of the programs that you're going to speak about in just yep. a moment. Altered um, Alter Carbon. Yep. Yeah, he's he's great. But um, uh, yeah, but this show it's actually very very similar in a lot of ways um the killing was about uh, a young girl in seattle who gets murdered and the investigation into that um and in uh seven seconds we also have a murder of sorts at the heart of um the story uh but also race is an added element because what we have is a it's set in new jersey what we have is a white police officer who uh inadvertently hits and kills a black teenager with his car. Um, And so it's about, you know, sort of the investigation of that, um, the cops trying to cover it up, um, this drunken uh, alcoholic DA um, who is trying to sort of make this her big break um, by discovering what happened in this case. Um, And, you know, just the dynamic in general, it's it's feel it feels more relevant than the killing was um and so i you know i've only watched a couple episodes at this point um but i think it's had a very promising start um there's some good actors in the cast um regina king plays the mom of the uh the child who dies um and uh so yeah so yeah i think it's uh i think it's going to be definitely a worthy watch at the end of the day um but definitely something a little more heavier than um or a little heavier, more heavier is redundant. Um, a little heavier than the Joel McHale show, for sure. So, my recommendations this week, there's something for everyone. If you like comedy, then watch the Joel McHale show. If you want something more serious, then check out 7 Seconds. Yeah, and I think that my structure is going to be very similar. I've 
I've been busy since in the last month. I finished up People vs. O.J. Simpson, which we've talked about once already. I just wanted to give another shout-out to Courtney B. Vance and most of the cast for just being incredible so in that good. television show. I don't think we need to dwell too much longer because we did devote some time to it before already. But I also, in terms of mixing the intensity with the comedy, if you will, I also went and saw Game Night last last weekend. I was kind of busy doing doing some stuff over the weekends, and I had restricted show times, so and I couldn't see Annihilation, so I saw Game Night instead. And and it's not a wonderful movie. I'd say that it ha- it's actually like there are some scenes that are actually like really bad, <laughs> really bad, including okay. like the first scene and the last scene. So it ends really poorly. But in the middle, I laughed a ton. Like Rachel McAdams and and Jason Bateman are both are both really really funny in the film. Tom Chandler also, right? Yep, yep. And I, uh, I, lo- I love him. He's the goat. Yeah, they're they're all really funny, and if you're looking for a good comedy, like if if you maybe show up late and leave early, like everything in the middle is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, like the, like g- genuinely, like the first scene in the film is like cringeworthy. It's it's really bad. But oh wow, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I've heard good things though. I, it's definitely yeah. something I will consider checking out now that I've heard decent things about it. Yeah, and I, I give it a positive review for sure because most in the middle, like it's a, it's a quality comedy. Um, yeah. It doesn't it doesn't kind of overuse any kind of themes uh, comedic themes which i think is a crime that a lot of movies commit um for me it's definitely worth seeing I, i'd recommend it if you're looking for a good comedy and it's out right now it came out the same weekend last weekend as i mentioned with annihilation and then recently you mentioned you mentioned this already and i alluded to it already previously when we were talking about uh talking about annihilation that is yeah. i've been i watched the first few episodes of altered carbon which is a Netflix show that was kind of built around the the hype of it was kind of built around being like the cyberpunk Game of Thrones, which is kind of a very weird. I don't know like who described yeah. it. That. I don't know if it was like marketed as that as by Netflix necessarily, but like some people were talking about it in that light, and I can tell you it is not the quality of Game of Thrones. <laughs> um, Game of Thrones is. I haven't seen all of Game of Thrones. I've seen like two and a half seasons of it so far. But that is a quality show with quality acting, for which I can't really say the same for Altered Carbon thus far. Like, Joel Kinnaman, I, my first experience with him was in The Killing, as you mentioned, and I loved him in The Killing. Yeah, he's fantastic on The Killing. Yeah, I don't love him in this role. He, he's playing a completely different character than his character in The Killing. Like, he's, he's playing this kind of really hardened, almost a terrorist, really, who's been, who's been asleep... There's there's a lot of like very sci-fi concepts that we don't need to like delve into and explain, but essentially he's been like asleep for 250 years, and his consciousness is like reborn in this new body um, to solve a murder, essentially. And again, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get into like the the wonky nature of the plot because there's like lots of sci-fi elements to it. But basically, I don't care about any character in this film. <laughs> I don't I think it tries to be like too clever for its own good. Like I'm three episodes in and, and it's clearly like hiding things from you from from your understanding of what's going on in the plot. And it's just like in an annoying way. It's like not even clever. And like it's it's like I guess it's like gimmicky to try to get you to watch the rest of the series, maybe. But yeah, like I, I just the, don't care. The real, the real goal and like a lot of the, the the real thing to look to in a lot of those shows like that is like can you actually figure out what's going on with what's been provided to you or is there some sort of red herring that they're, uh, you know, keeping from you and are just going to reveal that there's no way you ever could have figured out? I think that's where the good you separate the good from the bad. Yeah, and I mean, I can't say that it's going to be a red herring. Like, like maybe a, like episode seven or episode eight in, I'll be like, oh wow, I've just been dumb. 
the whole, the whole <laughs> yeah. time. But I, I don't get that impression based on like yeah. what's happening so far. We'll see if that changes. I'm only three episodes in. I'm going to finish watching it, even if I don't How have like. the reviews for, for it been in general, do you know? I think it's like middling. Like six, it's like okay. in the 60s on Rotten Tomato, I think. Okay. And about the same for Metacritic. So it, it's like fine. It's, it's about what, what most TV, like broadcast television shows get. So yeah, I, I don't, it's yeah. like not any worse than anything you'd, you'd see on like Fox or ABC or NBC. It's about the same level of reviews, but it's not like the quality of like an HBO show. Yeah. Um, the acting, I mean, the only people that I knew in this going into this are like James Purifoy, who plays this rich billionaire essentially, who's hired Joel Kinnaman's character, who plays like the detective, if you will. Right. But I don't have too much more to say yet because those are just, those are just my like hot takes on the first three episodes. But that's what I've been watching, and I am gonna finish it. So we'll see. Awesome. So why don't we switch over now to the discussion topic of the week. Scott, why don't you introduce us and get us going here? Yeah, so for these discussion topics, what we've been trying to do recently is just to uh, sort of tie them in with uh, something going on in the world of movies or, you know, something just going on in the world in general. We talked about our best sports movie when the Super Bowl is going on, for example. Um, and, of course, the big event looming in the future um, – not not the not the distant future tomorrow as a matter of fact yeah. um, it might be in the past for you when depending on when you're listening to this true yeah true but anyway the oscars um will be tomorrow uh evening and so in honor of uh the biggest night in movies the super bowl of movies if you will i thought for this discussion topic this week we would discuss our uh best performance best oscar winning performance uh, by an actor or actress in the last decade, just to sort of narrow it down um, so that we don't have the whole field um, at our disposal said the last decade. Um, so why don't we get started uh, with our honorable mention choices? Um, sure. Scott, do you have an honorable mention? I do, I do. This one's just on the cusp of the timeline that we're able to use. This movie came out in 2008, and the actor in question here won an Oscar in 2009 for his best actor in a supporting role, and that is... The late but great Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight, his performance as Joker, really... I wasn't someone who was like ever super into superhero movies, to use super way too many times in that sentence, um, before watching this film. like I, I had seen Batman Begins, and I'm, I had seen like Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies, I'm sure. But I, think I, I don't even think I'd seen Iron Man yet, and I didn't really start watching a bunch of superhero movies until much later. But this is the performance that sparked my interest in these kind of movies Heath Ledger is phenomenal as the Joker I I mean people praise Jack Nicholson all the time for his performance as as the Joker granted I, di- I didn't see that contemporary to when it was released and I've only seen it in retrospect but to me Heath Ledger puts him to shame and Jared Leto's also good but Heath Ledger is still like the Joker and will always be the Joker for me I think yeah, that, that's the thing for me what he does with this character is like he embodies the Joker so much. Like, I can never see anyone else playing the Joker. And, I mean, I think Jack Nicholson does a good job. Um, I haven't seen Suicide Squad or... Jared Leto's uh, good. He's a different kind of Joker. He's, he's good, though. Yeah, yeah. I, but, I, again, I just don't think anyone will ever be able to match what Heath Ledger did with this character. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's... To me, that's, a, that's definitely a no-brainer as one of the great performances of this last decade, um, Oscar-winning or not. Yep. What's your honorable mention? Uh, so for my honorable mention, uh, I also went with a uh, Best Supporting Actor uh, winner. This one from just a couple of years ago, though. Um, and that was J.K. Simmons for his performance in one of the best movies of the decade, in my opinion, Whiplash, uh, directed by Damien Chazelle. This character is just like 
it, it he grabs you from the moment he's on screen and like never lets go. It is such an aggressive, like off-putting character at parts during the movie. Uh, but at the same time, what I love so much is like there's actually a motivation for it, and th- there's actually a heart at the at the core of this character that like you wouldn't see in a lesser movie um you know in a lesser movie he might he would just be this oppressively cruel tyrant who just enjoys you know torturing his students um but that's not at all what you get in this movie you know he he, you have the moment where he tells andrew all who's also brilliantly played by miles teller um he tells him the most harmful words in the english language are good job um so you know he has a reason for everything that he does even if um, it doesn't seem like it at certain points. And so I just love the multi-dimensional uh, aspects to this character. And J.K. Simmons is just, he's always been a brilliant supporting actor, always a brilliant character actor. But um, this this was like too good of a role for him to pass up. And like, he absolutely nails it. I knew when I saw this movie that he was going to take home the Oscar. Um, and yet he's a long way from being Juno's dad in this particular role um, to, to, to reference another one of my favorite roles of his. Um, but he, uh, this was an, again, this was a no brainer, uh, choice. I think when you're thinking about the great Oscar winning performances of this decade, for sure, for sure. All right. Why don't you take the turn this time and start with your favorite, uh, favorite performance, best performance in the last decade for Oscar winners. Yeah. So talk about someone really embodying a character, um, for my, uh, well, and not just a character in this sense, but a real person in my, for my choice. Uh, I'm going with Daniel Day Lincoln's performance in Daniel Day Lewis. Daniel Day Lewis's performance in Lincoln. Nice. Um, and I think that really the brilliance of this performance is summed up by the actual moment when he won the Oscar. If you've ever seen the video, Meryl Streep. Um, ostensibly, what happened is while the nominations were playing on the video, um, she opened the envelope and already looked. Uh, but if you just watch the, the video of when he won the Oscar, it looks like she does not even open the envelope or look down. She just says, and the Oscar goes to Daniel Day-Lewis and Lincoln. And I think, like, even if she had never opened the envelope or looked down, nobody would have been mad because uh, everyone, like, in the in this year knew that Daniel Day-Lewis's performance, like, was an all-time classic. And I feel like we can say that about so many Daniel Day-Lewis's performances so many of his performances uh but this was like the first time we really saw him well that's not true he took he played um he, he was he was in my left foot he played a real uh real person but this is one of the first times we saw him play a real person um and so you know, you know we all know the stories about daniel day lewis and how method he is with his acting um but it's one thing when you are embodying an original character that people are not familiar with um, and, you know, have no impressions of one way or the other when they come into the theater. But it's totally something, it's something totally different when you are embodying a, one of the most loved figures in American history, especially given the fact that Daniel Day-Lewis is British. Um, so for him to take on this role of, you know, again, one of the most revered figures in American history, one of the, definitely one of the most beloved presidents, um, Although I would push back on that a little bit, but that's uh, a discussion topic for our politics podcast. Um, soon, soon to come in 2018. <laughs> no, yeah. Um, but yeah, he 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 makes this larger than life figure. Like you know, we hear all these folk stories about um, Abraham Lincoln and Anna 
Thomas Dave and all of this stuff. He just he, at times he doesn't seem like he was ever a real person, but when you're watching this movie, he is seems so, like such a real person because of what Daniel Day Lewis is able to bring to the character and just the conflict, um, you know, which he is undergoing both internally um, and then, of course, with the Civil War going on throughout this movie. Um, I can't imagine another actor ever playing a president so effectively um, or, for that matter, playing a historical figure so effectively. And obviously none of us really know what Abraham Lincoln was like, um, but I would wager to say that uh, Daniel Day-Lewis probably made as sure as he possibly could that he was going to be as authentic um, as as possible to this character, um, and it definitely shows on screen. Um, and I think overall, Lincoln is just uh, a great movie in general. Um, it's on. It just got added to Netflix, by the way, so y'all should check it out if you've never managed to see it. But um, that's a big it, deal, actually. I'm actually that that's a big deal that that's on Netflix. Yeah. But That's it's cool. one of those movies where, like, on paper, uh, I, you know, I was interested in it all along, but I think a lot of people on paper would look at it and say, oh, this is just a history lesson. Um, and, you know, it a movie like, but it's, it's not, it's, it's definitely not. It's not a movie like, for example, Darkest Hour, a movie that came out this year, which I think does tend to fall into that, um, you know, just being a history lesson um, a little bit too much, although it also has an amazing central performance um, from Gary Oldman. But it's a, so entertaining, and it has, like, so much humor and heart to it um, that I think anyone who um, goes into this movie, no matter what your preconceptions of it are, um, will find themselves very pleasantly surprised when it is over. Um, although not perhaps pleasantly surprised that Daniel Day-Lewis gives a brilliant performance because we've come to expect that by now, but I don't think that takes away from how great this performance is. Agreed. Yeah, I can't... I mean, it's it's sad if, if Phantom Thread is his last movie, it'll be sad to never see him again in a new movie on the, on the big screen. Yeah, he's definitely left his mark, though. Absolutely. All right, so... I, I couldn't agree more that, that Daniel Day-Lewis is deserving of a Best Oscar winner choice for the last 10 years. For me, I, I actually stayed in the Best Supporting Actor category for this one. To uh, That really struck me, and, and I think that, that this one also resonates with you as we were talking before the show, as my best performance is going to be Christoph Waltz from Inglorious Bastards. It's, you know, you have to specify Inglorious Bastards because he's won two Oscars in the last 10 years. <laughs> for two Tarantino movies. For two Tarantino movies, absolutely, but... I don't, I don't want to wax lyrical for too long about this, but to talk about one scene in particular, and you kind of had this moment where you said you knew that J.K. Simmons was going to win the Oscar for Whiplash in the year you saw, you saw him in that movie. I it's think be the opening scene, right? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. The opening <laughs> scene in Inglorious Bastards, by yeah. the end of it, you're like, yeah, well, Christoph Waltz is going to win the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. Like, you know it's going to be him, because that scene is incredible. Just absolutely stunning performance by him. The way he masters your attention, the way he masters, you know, the attention of the people he's talking to in that scene. You know, the the I guess is it French family? I don't. Yeah, yeah, he's a yeah, he's a farmer, he's, but he's French. Yeah. Yeah. So this this French farming family that are hiding, uh, the this Jewish family in World War right before World War Two or during World War Two, and it's just it's an incredibly masterful kind of almost one-sided scene because he's just about the only person who talks there may be a couple lines from the from the from the uh, french family but just just wonderful i don't i know that you have plenty to add so i'll leave some time for you 
Yeah, I mean, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, I like, I, th- I actually think this is Quentin Tarantino's greatest movie. Um, and that's something I've thought a lot about because obviously I love Pulp Fiction as well. Um, and that is, you know, a classic. But I don't know. I think this movie for me is is even better. Um, and it's because of scenes like that first one, um, which are is, is just so powerful. Um, and like, you just can't take your eyes off it at all, even though, like you said, it basically is just Christoph Waltz doing a monologue. Um, but it's so suspenseful too. Like, we talked about how suspenseful that scene in Annihilation is. I mean, this scene is like this the suspense level of that like but then it's stretched out over 20 minutes and somehow it like you know he still maintains the suspense the entire time um but i think christoph waltz is so great and like you look at both of his performances in this movie and in django unchained and i think that um he he touches on similar notes although obviously he is in one movie playing a very evil character in another movie he's playing a good guy but he has this sort of very very mannered and polite um but yet there's something else totally lurking beneath the surface. Um, and in Django, he plays it um, for laughs in a lot of scenes because he's, you know, he plays Dr. King Schultz, the dentist. Um, and in this movie, it's just there's some, there's always something sinister there, even, you know, in the way he's being so polite to. I mean, of course, the moment, the, the classic moment from that first scene is when he asks for the glass of milk. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, a, 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 again, a no brainer. Uh, I'm, sound like a broken record here but um you know you could you couldn't go wrong with either one of these performances but i think you're right to pick that one just because it is the better movie in my opinion of the two and yeah like if you've never seen this movie it's also on netflix i mean again it's in my top 10 of all time like i can't say enough about how good it is yeah and and it stands above other incredible scenes in this one you talk about the whole film being fantastic but i remember also the the like bar scene it's kind of like halfway yeah, through the movie yeah, when they're playing the card game yeah and Chris, yeah, christoph mean, waltz isn't in that scene that but... as good as his performance as it is as colorful as it is it doesn't take anything away from anyone else or anything else that happens in the movie i mean there are still some fantastic performances i mean melanie laurent i also think was isn't is sensational playing shoshana um in this mm-hmm. movie um so yeah and then brad pitt michael fassbender they're all amazing yeah um diane kruger also yep I mean, diane yeah, kruger great cast absolutely all right, so speaking of Oscars, we also promised a couple episodes ago that we would come back with our official Oscar picks, and we're going to do that now. Like We, we filled out a full ballot for this, which we will v- revisit next week to let you guys know how we did, because there's 24 different categories on our ballot. But we're just going to focus on some of the bigger ones. We're going to go through this pretty quickly, because we've already had an episode to talk about these, these award categories. But why don't we start with Best Adapted Screenplay? So we have Call Me By Your Name, The Disaster Artist, Logan, Molly's Game, and Mudbound. And then we're going to work our way up to Best Picture from there. So, Best Adapted Screenplay, Scott. I'm picking Molly's Game for this because I think that the the Academy loves Aaron Sorkin. And I think that that's who, who they're going to pick. And I also think that they really like spreading awards around. They're actually they're actually not very well known for just like humping a ton of awards, especially recently, on one movie. So I think Molly's Game has a pretty good chance at this one. Yeah, I mean, obviously I would love to see Molly's Game win. I love Aaron Sorkin. Um... But I'm actually going to go with Mudbound for this one, um, okay. just because I, I could definitely see um, uh, the Academy showing some love to a streaming movie. Obviously, this was a Netflix um, original movie, yep. um, and I think that although I have not seen it, I've heard that the screenplay um, is very lyrical and very um, just very well done in general, um, and 
again, uh, this is a category where there are like a, not a lot of the big heavy hitter movies are nominated. Um, so I could definitely see uh, the Academy giving love to Mudbound, um, especially you know given how much Netflix has really um, inserted itself in both the movie and TV market. It's interesting because I actually think it's the the opposite reason is why that's not going to win in this category because I think the Academy doesn't like. Netflix's influence on the role of film and, and taking movies out of the theater, out of the out of the place that uh, movies should be seen, if you will. Uh, I mean, you can you can judge whether you agree or disagree with that stance, but I think the Academy doesn't probably. I mean, I could be totally wrong. We'll see tomorrow night. But yeah, we will let the Academy settle the debate. I guess have they? I don't think Netflix has won a big. They, I mean, they have like this is the first year they've even been nominated in a big category. In a big so. category, yeah, I would say so. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. So you've got you've got Mudbound. I've got Molly's Game. Best original screenplay. So we have The Big Sick, Get Out, Lady Bird, The Shape of Water, Three Billboards. This is a tough one, but I'm going to go uh, with Get Out for this one, just because I think it was such a huge cultural moment in 2017. Like for this movie to have resonated as it did when it's considering it came out in like March or April, um, really early in the year. Um, it really speaks, I think, to how relevant and I, I think that's the word relevant and i think that's why the screenplay in particular is going to be the thing um which gets it an award i don't really think it's going to win anything else other than screenplay um but i think it is it is a movie for our time and for that reason i think they'll recognize jordan peele for get out absolutely i'm for the same reasoning i've also picked get out and i think uh, other rewards in this category barring the big sick are going to win uh, awards in other categories so i also picked yes. get out all right, makeup and hairstyling, Darkest Hour, Victorian Abdul, Wonder. Uh, well, I, so I've only seen one of these movies, but I think Darkest Hour, from what I've seen, is going to be the heavy favorite, and it should be, um, because I think that, like, um, Gary Oldman is completely unrecognizable in this role. Like, when yes. I first saw, I remember first seeing the production stills from this movie and thinking, is that really Gary Oldman? Um, so the way that they're able to literally transform him into Winston Churchill um, is is incredible. And also wonder, like, I don't know, but for just from seeing the trailers, the the makeup wasn't that convincing to me uh, on, for Jacob Tremblay, but I guess that's part of the point of his character. Um, but yeah, I think Darkest Hour is going to win this one. Yeah, you're wondering about wonder, maybe. Fun um, <laughs> aside, yeah, I also picked Darkest Hour. I haven't seen any of these films these films yet i want to see darkest hour as soon as i can and i should be able to but darkest hour seems to make the most sense for me all right best cost best costume design beauty and the beast darkest hour phantom thread the shape of water victoria and abdul i think it's got to be phantom thread i mean this is a movie about costumes um in some in some uh some respects um but also i mean you know beauty and the beast definitely has the more uh classically um you know costumed in, nature in, yeah 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 and classical story to it as well um so if if academy voters don't connect with phantom thread as a movie which i think is definitely possible they may not also award it in this category so i guess those were those are the two which i think are the favorites but i if pushed i would go with phantom thread agreed i pick i'm picking phantom thread for the same reasons that you've elaborated on and, but i also think it's totally I, I wouldn't be surprised if beauty and the beast won yeah i mean the costumes are basically a character in phantom thread but we already talked about that movie, so... <laughs> Indeed. All right, best cinematography. Blade Runner 2049, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, Mudbound, The Shape of Water. Why is Darkest Hour nominated for best cinematography? Anyway, um, <laughs> Dunkirk has got to be the one for me. Um, like, how... 
unbelievably immersive this movie is. I know that I always use that word to describe it, but there, I don't think there's any better way to describe it. Um, like, it puts you right there in the midst of the battle. Um, I think it's just a beautifully shot movie, whether it's in the air, on the sea, or on the beach. Um, it, it does it all. Yeah, I'm I'm going with Blade Runner 2049, actually, in this one. I know you haven't seen it, which is why you're not considering it as, po- as a possible winner in this category, but yeah. <laughs> its cinematography is incredible. Its visuals are incredible. I wouldn't be surprised if Dunkirk won. That was the one I was deciding between for Blade Runner 2049 and Dunkirk, but uh, we'll see. We'll see. Best original score. Mighty River, Mudbound, Mystery of Love, Call Me By Your Name, Remember Me, Coco, Stand Up For Something, Marshall, This Is Me, The Greatest Showman. So this is song, not score, correct? Best original song. Did I say score? Yeah. I apologize. Yes, best original sc- song. Uh, I don't really know. I don't have like a good read on any of these, um, but I guess I would have to say that the winner will probably be Mary J. Blige's song from Mudbound. Um, considering she's also nominated for Best Supporting Actress, um, I could definitely see um, her them awarding her in this category because I don't think she will win at all in the Best Supporting Actress category. Um uh, and again, I think it's probably a bit more of a more meaningful song than some of the others. Although I do think that The Greatest Showman could perhaps nick it because it has been such a crowd pleaser, um, despite not being terribly well-reviewed. Um, but I'm going to go with Mary J. Blige's song. Yeah, this one was a bit harder to choose because I can see arguments for a lot of them here. So Mighty River from Mudbound is, a, is the one I did pick, as you did. But I also was deciding between the Coco song, Remember Me, and... Um, also, this is me from The Greatest Showman, because as you said, it was kind of a fan favorite. But I did yeah. pick Mighty River as well, because I agree, Mary J. Blige has no chance of winning Best Supporting Actress. And yeah. they do like to spread the awards around, and I think Mary J. Blige would be deserving. All right, this is Best Original Score. I got it right this time. Dunkirk, <laughs> Phantom Thread, The Shape of Water, Star Wars The Last Jedi, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Uh, this is one of the hardest categories, in my opinion. Um, oh, I disagree. Please, this isn't a hard category. Really? <laughs> Yeah, well, I know you have it. Actually, I think we're probably going to end up um, choosing the same one. Uh, but I think that all of these scores are so good, although I haven't seen The Shape of Water. Um, but, and all these composers are obviously so well-regarded. I mean, Carter Burwell, Alexander Desplat, John Williams. Um, you know, but these are some of the hugest names in composers. Yeah. Johnny in, Greenwood. In, yeah. Yeah, well, Johnny, yeah, Johnny Greenwood as well, of course. Um, Although I think my favorite of the of the five is probably still Carter Burwell's score in Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Um, I'm going to go with Johnny Greenwood for Phantom Thread, just because music oh, wow. is such a huge part of this movie. Um, like again, I think I talked about during our Phantom Thread review how music is apparently there's music playing in like 70 or 80 minutes of this movie. Yep. Um, so I, I think it's just impossible to ignore. And obviously, Johnny Greenwood does an amazing job as well. Oh, I thought for sure that you were going to pick Three Billboards. Well, it's my favorite one, like I said, but I think Phantom Thread will win. Yeah, no, I, I pick Phantom Thread, absolutely. Um, although it was tough to choose three, I think. I mean, I think that I think that the Academy will like uh, likes three billboards probably. I mean, I could be proven wrong tomorrow night if they don't win any awards, but um, I I think it probably will be Phantom Thread for the reasons you've elaborated on. All right, best yeah. film editing: Baby Driver, Dunkirk, I Tanya, Shape of Water, Three Billboards. This is a tough choice. Um, between Baby Driver and Dunkirk. Uh, but again, I think Dunkirk was just such an impressive film technically um, that I think it's probably going to clean up in the technical categories. Um, and again, the way that the movie goes between land, air, and sea, um, I think really speaks to the strength of the editing um, 
and the way that it's able to tie everything together in a cohesive way without making the movie sound seem disjointed. So I'm going with Dunkirk once again. Yeah, Dun- Dunkirk for sure for me as well. I think I think Baby Driver is going to win in in some other categories, particularly in the sound categories for like sound editing. Yes. Um, but I think Dunkirk should win this one pretty hands down, especially with the way that it plays with time and, and editing out different sequences to mat to match different time cycles is brilliant. Right. All right, best visual effects: Blade Runner twenty forty nine, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume two, Kong Skull Island, Star Wars: The Last Jedi, War for the Planet of the Apes. Well, I guess I'm just going to choose the one that I've actually seen, that <laughs> being Star Wars The Last Jedi, um, and that's my only reasoning for picking it. <laughs> Blade Runner 2049 for me. Um, if it doesn't, yeah. for, if for some reason it doesn't win Best Cinematography, I can't imagine it not winning Best Visual Effects, but I mean, I, think, I could be I wrong. I think it probably will win as well, even though I haven't seen it, but I'll go with Star Wars just for the sake of being different. All right. Best Supporting Actor. Let's get into the big categories now. Um you know, you know these already, but I'll repeat them. Willem Dafoe, Woody Harrelson, Richard Jenkins, Christopher Plummer, Sam Rockwell. You know, I think there has been so much backlash over Sam Rockwell's character. Um, I don't know. Um, I want to say that he's going to win it just because he's won everything else. Uh, but I'm going to go. I'm going to call go for an upset here, uh, and I'm going to say that the Academy is going to go is going to choose. Uh, Richard Jenkins and The Shape of Water to win this award. Oh wow! Okay, uh, I got Sam Rockwell. I think they'll. I think they'll pick him for sure. I think Richard Jenkins, just to expand a little bit more, is like he's one of those character actors like J.K. Simmons, who's always plays great roles, um, but like you know he's kind of behind the scenes as part of the backdrop in a lot of movies. But I think, at least from from my, my read on The Shape of Water. Um, this is this is uh, a movie which has given him a rare chance to be sort of at the forefront more, um, and so I, I think the Academy could recognize him um, in the same way they recognize J.K. Simmons, just because again, The Shape of Water is one of their most recognized movies um, for the whole evening. So I'm going to go with the upset. That makes sense. I could I could see it happening. I'll be interested to see once I actually see Shape of Water how I feel about it. All right, best supporting actress: Mary J. Blige, Allison Janney, Leslie Manville, Laurie Metcalf, Octavia Spencer. It's got to be Allison Janney. No, no explanation needed. Agreed. We'll move on. Best actor: <laughs> Timothy Chalamet, Daniel Day Lewis, Daniel Kaluuya, Gary Oldman, Denzel Washington. It's got, again. It's got to be Gary Oldman. I think. I think this is his year. Um, yeah, he has the same thing going as Richard Jenkins. Although he has been, you know, he's he's more of a household name than Richard Jenkins is certainly. But the physical transformation and and everything that he underwent to play this role, uh, and because it is. You know, the sort of uh, by-the-numbers biopic, which the Academy tends to enjoy. Um, he's won everything to this point. It's got to be him. All right. I, I have him as well, although I'll be interested to see how they treat Daniel Day-Lewis in his last for his last movie, or what he says True. is his last movie. True. Best Actress, Sally Hawkins, Frances McDormand, Margot Robbie, Sharshi Ronan, Meryl Streep. Again, this is a tough one, just because I don't know how the Academy is going to react to some of the backlash around three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, but I think... Even with um, all of the backlash, even if they do take into account all of the backlash and it doesn't win any other awards, I think Frances McDormand's performance is something that they will recognize just because it's just impossible to ignore. It's impossible to forget after you've seen it. And although, again, this is probably the strongest category of the entire Oscars, any one of them, could e- I could easily see them winning it. <clears throat> I'm going to go with... Uh, with Francis McDormand and three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. 
Um, yep. Although I could easily see Sally Hawkins or Cersei Ronan if I had to go with the backup. Yeah, I also have Francis McDormand picked. I think that if there is, if the, in the off chance the the Academy is kind of really sensitive to that backlash, I think this is the category where all three bowlers will take home an award, uh, if Definitely. if nowhere else. Best director: Chris Nolan, Jordan Peele, Greta Gerwig, Paul Thomas Anderson, Guillermo del Toro. Again, I think there are. Uh, this is going to be a tough battle between Ger- Greta Gerwig and Guillermo del Toro. Um, I'm going to go with Greta Gerwig, though, just because I think the this, this snub at the Golden Globes was very conspicuous, and a lot of people made a big deal about it. And because this has been such a good year for women um, in film, I think the Academy could recognize her in a category that is traditionally male-dominated. Only one female director has ever won Best Director, and that was Catherine Bigelow just a few years ago. Um, so I think they're going to choose Greta Gerwig. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think even... It's tough because I want Guillermo del Toro to also win this because his his direction is so. I've mentioned this several times now, but like his direction, his kind of directing is really important to Hollywood. I think, but I agree, and it's not wrong. Like Greta Gerwig also deserves uh, Academy Awards. Uh, Lady Bird was fantastic, but yeah, I picked Greta Gerwig as well with uh, Guillermo del Toro as a close second. All right, Best Picture: Call Me by Your Name, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, Get Out, Lady Bird, Phantom Thread, The Post, The Shape of Water, Three Billboards. I choose the post. No, I'm kidding. Um, I'm actually going to go with uh, The Shape of Water just because, and I've talked about this previously, um, but I think it has the technical aspects um, that got it a lot of technical nominations as well as the great storytelling and acting, although I've not seen it. Um, Just the the breadth of its nominations really speaks to that. Um, So I think that the Academy is going to recognize it, especially because it is a more unconventional film as well. And I think the Academy has done a lot this year to try and um, recognize some more, some less traditional films, um, you know, like Lady Bird or even like Three Billboards Outside of Missouri. Um, So, but I think The Shape of Water is going to take it, although... Uh, my backup choices would be those two movies, which I just mentioned, Lady Bird and Three Billboards. Agreed. I think, especially if they don't give Best Director to Guillermo del Toro, they'll certainly give Best Picture to Shape of Water, in my mind. Could be wrong. We're going to find out, though. All right, that about wraps up our Oscar picks for tomorrow night, for Sunday night's 90th Academy Awards. We'll be back next week, and we'll, we'll, we'll dissect that more closely. But right before we wrap up, there has been some stuff that's happened this week. We're not doing a Schmodown update this week. Uh, we A lot of episodes essentially have happened since the last one we recorded, and we think it'd be too much to cover in one episode. And when we return in two weeks, we'll be covering the Schmodown's kind of title matches, and so we'll be talking more about it then. Anything you want to say about that really quickly before we move on to some news to wrap up? Yeah, well, let's do our let's do a little brief Schmodown segment here known as uh, Horrible Answers um, in, in the Schmodown. I think this this could be a great segment um, because, you know, I don't want to shame any Schmodown competitors, but if you put yourself out there, if you put yourself on a competitive trivia program like the Schmodown, uh, there are some basic things you should just know. So my, my winner for the Horrible Answer uh, the worst answer since we last um, recorded. recorded, yeah, uh, was, and correct me if I'm wrong on what the question was, in the uh, box office breakdown superhero news match, um, Amy Martinez from B.O.B. drew the Spielberg category, and the question, I believe, was uh, Frank Abagnale is the main character in yep. what um, Steven Spielberg movie, yep. and she decided to go um, somewhat bewilderingly with... <laughs> 
Jaws. Yeah, um, that's a bad yes, answer. You know, Frank Abagnale, <laughs> the classic character from Jaws, not at all an uh, actual person who was played by Leonardo DiCaprio in Catch Me If You Can. Yeah, but, oh, uh, so that, bad. That one was bad. Do you have one that sticks out for you? I do. I have two, but one's, one in my mind is worse than the other. There was one moment where in the inner geekdom five way, the fatal five way, I forget the um, the woman's name, but she got yeah, Keaton, she, Mar- Keaton Markey. Yeah, Keaton Markey, who is a Harry Potter buff, got a Deathly Hallows question for I think her five pointer was it? Mm-hmm. And yes, to stay in the game, to stay in the game, and she f- she flubbed it horribly. She got too excited and said that the Philosopher's Stone was was a or the Sorcerer's Stone in, in the U.S was one of the Deathly Hallows, which was unbelievable. I was screaming at the television. <laughs> I could not believe it. But but yeah. my worst answer was from the from Tuesday's, um, I believe it was the, the Kingsman, what was the other team's name? The Kingsman and the World's Finest mat, uh, team matchup, where I believe the question was who, this is like a rough recount of the question, I don't remember the exact phrasing, but essentially who was the sheriff in Man of the House, who, who played the sheriff in Man of the House, and... Also bewildered lately, although this person was at least in the movie, um, said Cedric the Entertainer, <laughs> as opposed to Tommy Lee Jones. After about three seconds without consulting with their teammate either. Yes, and, and the teammate, it seemed like his teammate might have known the answer, based on the initial reaction to the question, but he was so confident, he just went with Cedric the Entertainer, who is in the movie for a few minutes as one of the, jan- the janitor at the church, I believe. But Tommy Lee Jones is the you sheriff. You have a very detailed recollection of that movie. I will admit that I've seen that. It disturbs me. It, it should disturb you. I will admit that when I was in my lo- like lower teens, whenever this movie was released, I did see this movie a couple times. So that's why I know that. <laughs> but yeah, in general, there are a lot of good things going on in the Schmodown. We had you know a lot of new people playing matches, newcomers playing matches in February. Um, but uh, March is going to be uh, a big month for, for old favorites, starting with uh, yesterday's uh, double double teamer, um, with two great matches, um, and I, I won't spoil them because Scott has yet to watch them. But uh, the undercard match between Nick Scarpino and Josh Bakuga, two people who are essentially the same person, um, as you will <laughs> see in this match. And weirdly enough, the the main event on this uh, particular uh, episode is also two people who have been mistaken for the same person. Although that's more, more to do with their physical appearance, um, and that is uh, two titans of the showdown. William the Beast Bibiani and Drew the Godfather McQueenie, um, and it was a, a great match that really lived up to the hype, um, and especially Bibiani's entrance, which I won't spoil, but he, he's known for, for his big entrances, and this might have been his best one yet. Oh, but I, yeah, next I can't week, wait. title week, um, we got Cushing and Levine on Tuesday in the singles title match, and then on, on Friday... Um, the team title match between top 10 Patriots. So keep yeah, we'll, that on your radar. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll visit those matches next time a little bit more in depth. But I did like our worst answer section. I don't know if we'll have any worst answers to talk about in the next episode, though, because <laughs> yeah, there not. are some big hitters coming up. All right, so quick news wrap-up before we get th- down to things. I know I texted you this yesterday, and we were both very excited about it. We've mentioned Tarantino several times already on this episode, but he's coming up again. So it's, it's now confirmed, I believe, that Brad Pitt is joining Leo DiCaprio for Tarantino's next film about Charles Manson, and it's also heavily rum- rumored that... Um, I'm sorry that Margot Robbie is going to be joining the cast as well, which is thrilling for me. I'm I'm over the moon about this. I don't know. Yeah, if you... I mean, I'm, I'm I'm excited about any Quentin Tarantino movie. When I heard he was making a Charles Manson movie, like seems like a perfect topic for him to tackle. Although I will be interested to see what his approach to this movie is, just because his approach to uh, historical events in the past has been 
uh, very sort of irreverent, but I mean, that's Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, it'll be interesting to see how he treats this, but I mean, obviously he's got a, got a great cast to start with there. Yep. And then some other quick news that I don't think involves much discussion, but Infinity Wars release date has been moved up a week. If you want a little bit longer discussion of that, uh, Jay and I talk about that in our Marvel countdown from this week about Thor The Dark World. We met, we talk a little bit about why that might have happened. And then Kristen Wiig is also rumored as the as the Wonder Woman 2 villain as Cheetah. I don't know if you saw this, but that's kind of... That was a that was odd, but I'm I'm into it. Yeah, I, think. I did not see that. That's very off the wall casting. Um, well, the point was made actually by since we were talking about Schmidt about some Collider people. I believe it was Mark Ellis was talking about a lot of recently a lot of comedians have been tasked with playing these like really demented roles because they understand like psych human psyche really well. And that's yeah. how they tap into comedy, which I I bought that explanation. Good good on Mark well, Ellis. I mean, yeah, especially thinking about somebody like Robin Williams. Um, who was so good at doing dramatic roles and doing even like creepy roles, even a movie like One Hour Photo or World's Greatest Dad? Like he he really like had had this dark side that like yep. you know you wouldn't have expected from someone who also did Jack and Aladdin and all of these other classic comedies. Yeah, so I'm I'm into that. We'll see. I wonder Woman two is really pretty far down the pipeline, I think. But yeah. that was coming out this week. And then a bigger piece of news: Michael B. Jordan. Go Michael B. Jordan, most underrated. Well, maybe not most underrated actor anymore after Black Panther. But uh, yeah, seriously, Michael B. Jordan and Michael Shannon are going to be starring in Fahrenheit 451, an HBO adaption uh, miniseries of Fahrenheit 451, which I'm over the moon about. I texted you like pretty late one night this week with uh, some like I think alarm bell emojis about this. Yeah, uh, no, that's. I'll be interested to see it. I mean, Michael Shannon is an actor for me who's very hit or miss. Like, I think he's been really good in some stuff. Like, uh, Nocturnal Animals, I thought he was fantastic in that. Um, but then in, like, Man of Steel, for example, uh, not, the, not the greatest. So I'll be interested to see how he does in this movie, especially because Fahrenheit 451 is um, a classic novel, great novel. Um, but, yeah, I think this could, be, this could be a big one for HBO. I don't know. I think Zod might be my favorite Michael Shannon performance. If I were joking. Seriously? No, no, no. I'm completely joking. Okay. Really, no, no, no. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So that's all the news we got this week. We've taken enough of your time. Where can people find you on Twitter, Scott? Uh, you can still find me at Scarvy Dent. Um, March Madness is picking up, so oh boy. get in there now for those, uh, for those spicy March Madness tweets. Yeah. Do you have any other parting thoughts? I know I kind of skipped over this, but do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with besides follow your Twitter for March Madness? Um... Yeah, go listen to that Weird Al Hamilton polka. Um, yeah, I'm totally checking that out. I'm, I'm checking yeah, it out as soon as we finish it. It's here. pretty special. There's also a good video of Len Manuel Miranda when he listened to it for the first time. <laughs> and just his reactions are, are great. Like, you can tell he really appreciates um, like the fact that Weird Al uh, went through all of this. Awesome. Well, I like I said, I'm going to check that out immediately. Um, yeah. In the meantime, though, until we come back for our next episode, I can be found at SShelton2013 over on Twitter. More importantly, however, you can follow the podcast on Twitter as well at Media Plug Pods, as well as over on Facebook where you can search for Some Like a Scott or Media Plug Pods, whichever you prefer, and find it. We also want to remind you about our Patreon page. We'd love it if you checked it out, especially so if you decide to support us over there to help us cover the costs of making this show. If you choose not to support us on Patreon, that's totally okay. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts where we'd really appreciate it if you rated, reviewed us, subscribed, shared, all that jazz, so that we can continue to reach a broader audience and, you know, reach more people. We, we Our last episode really took off. We got about five times as many views on our last episode as before, so we're hoping that trend can continue. All right. 
I think I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking the time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. We'll be back in a couple weeks with plenty to say about Red Sparrow and the Tomb Raider reboot. But until then, we hope you have a wonderful day. For Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening.